On the morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, detonating in the air. A flash of light, then a deafening boom followed, leaving a blast zone with a mile radius and sparking firestorms across another four miles. Seventy to 80,000 people were killed. Today on Scream Scene, we're talking about the 1954 horror film Gojira from director Ishiro Honda. But before we can cover the making of the film, we have to explain the cultural context in which it was made. I've just described the first military use of the atomic bomb, the bombing of Hiroshima in 1945 by the United States of America. Eleven days prior, President Truman made an ultimatum known as the Potsdam Declaration to Japan, surrender unconditionally or face prompt and utter destruction. Japan resolved to never surrender and continued to war against the Allied powers, specifically the U.S. and the U.K., as the USSR had a non-aggression pact with Japan. The Allies were closing in on Japan, delivering daily air raids and firebombs across the country. On the morning of August 6th, air raid sirens had sounded, but ended around 7.30 a.m. local time. When the plane carrying the atomic bomb arrived, the locals assumed it was a reconnaissance plane. Sixteen hours after the bombing of Hiroshima, President Truman announced by radio what had occurred and reiterated the need for an unconditional surrender from Japan. In Hiroshima, 69% of the buildings were gone between the blast and the ensuing firestorms. Hospitals and vital infrastructure were destroyed, leaving very little support for the civilian casualties requiring immediate help. Along with the usual wounds from a destructive bomb were new injuries of burns, inflammation of the eyes and throat, mouth sores, nausea, and other symptoms of radiation sickness. Japan's Supreme Council for the Direction of the War debated and then determined that Japan could endure one or two more atomic bombs. Surely, the Allied forces hadn't been able to mass-produce such a weapon. So, the decision was made by the United States to drop a second bomb. On August 9, 1945, at 11.02 a.m. local time, a second atomic bomb was dropped, this time on Nagasaki. Though a more powerful bomb, the rolling hills of Nagasaki within the Urakami Valley helped confine the blast area and limited fires to within a two-mile radius. Still, 35 to 40,000 people were killed instantly, with another 60,000 injured. Leslie Nakashima noted his personal account of the damage to Nagasaki in his August 27th United Press International article. Nakashima, along with Western journalist Wilfred Burchett, were the first to report on the nuclear fallout of the bombs and the radiation burns and poisoning affecting the Japanese people. Until those reports, the extent and impact of nuclear fallout wasn't fully understood even by the scientists developing the bombs. Symptoms of radiation sickness and poisoning, now called acute radiation syndrome, include nausea, vomiting, fever, anemia, headache and dizziness, red skin, hair loss, inflammation of the mouth and throat, mouth sores, bleeding into the skin, and necrosis of wounds. Victims often had radiation scarring from the unique burns and wound necrosis. Deaths from the radiation began to be reported around one week after the bombs, and deaths peaked at three to four weeks after. Including those who died from the immediate blasts, a total of 129 to 226,000 people were killed. 
survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings were termed Hibakusha, or bomb-affected people. It was a term used previously for survivors of any kind of bomb, but now it became a label to describe the people affected directly by these atomic bombs and their immediate aftermath. Nuclear fallout and radiation was not understood very well, and unfortunately, Hibakusha became ostracized due to fears that radiation was contagious. Long-term effects of the radiation showed birth defects, instances of leukemia, and other cancers up to five years later, but Hibakusha were avoided in workplaces and even in family relations for fears that the radiation could be spread through close proximity or through blood relations. These fears were unfounded, but resulted in Hibakusha being discriminated against. The bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th, respectively, shocked the civilian population. However, it was the invasion of Russia into Manchuria on August 9th that finalized Japan's surrender. The USSR breaking its non-aggression pact, along with the devastation to the country, spurred Emperor Hirohito into ordering the Supreme Council for the direction of the war into surrendering. Japan's surrender became official on August 15, 1945. For Japan, surrender meant complete agreement to the Potsdam Declaration terms President Truman had laid out in July. These included the removal of authority and influence from those leading the war efforts, Allied occupation anywhere in Japanese territories, Japan's sovereignty to be limited to the major islands Honshu, Hokkaido, Kyushu, Sikoku, and minor islands as decided by the Allied forces, the disarmament of the Japanese army, removal within the government to all obstacles around the revival and strengthening of democratic tendencies, this including freedom of speech, thought, and religion, and for Japan to maintain her industries, but not those enabling rearmament for war. So this included access to, but not control of, raw materials like steel, coal, and cotton. Once these objectives were achieved, any Allied occupying forces were to be removed. The occupation was led by U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, now placed as the supreme commander of Allied powers. While post-war Germany was divided into sections controlled individually by the Allies, Japan was managed holistically. Emperor Hirohito remained on the throne, though the wartime cabinet was replaced with an Allied-approved cabinet invested in meeting these Potsdam terms. The last months of the war had left civilians facing food shortages and homelessness, not just from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also from the firebombing raids across the country. And with the surrender of Japan, the food seizures from China, Japan, and Taiwan were ended, which exacerbated the food shortage. The black market grew as a resource for even just basic necessities, and Japan faced rapid inflation. MacArthur and the new Japanese cabinet began drafting a new constitution that would introduce a parliamentary democracy. The emperor became a state symbol. Shinto was removed as a state religion, as well as the more militaristic rituals being prohibited. The new constitution also enfranchised women, instigated certain human rights, and decentralized police and local governments. Also included in the new constitution was Article 9, the Peace Clause. As part of Japan's demilitarization, this clause banned Japan from maintaining any armed forces. As the government changed, so did Japan's economic system. Like Germany, Japan faced a process of 
deindustrialization followed by economic reconstruction. Inspired by the 1930s New Deal programs, MacArthur redistributed land ownership to support agricultural production and spearheaded policies like the Trade Union Act of 1945 and the Labor Standards Act in 1947. He also instituted censorship of media, which was managed by the Civil Information Education Section. These censorship rules would be applied to everything from news and film, textbooks, and more, and included rules like no reference to censorship in and of itself, (laughs) no criticism of the occupation, no criticism of pre-war policies or actions by the Allied powers, including China and Korea, no reference to the ongoing Cold War, or reference to a potential Third World War, no promotion of nationalism or patriotism, justification of war, militaristic content, or mention of a divine Japan, no depiction of relationships between Japanese women and American men, and no mention of the black market, the food shortage or starvation, or excessive coverage of criminal activities. Now, conditions in Japan were becoming more stable as the political, economic, and social changes took place. However, the Korean War in 1950 meant Japan became a supply center for the United Nations operations. As the center for shipping logistics, the building of equipment, and more, Japan's economy boomed. As part of the Potsdam terms, Japan would have access to, but not control of, raw materials, and the Korean War changed that. Japan gained ownership of its steel, coal, and cotton resources again, making the Korean War almost a turning point for the occupation, and the Allied forces would officially end the occupation in 1952. During this time, the Cold War was increasing tensions between the U.S. and the USSR. The U.S. wanted to ensure a strong Japan in order to withstand any kind of Russian influence, as well as for Japan to become an ally against the USSR. While Japan's Article 9 still mandated that they could not maintain a military force, in 1954, a de facto armed forces called the Japanese Self-Defense Force was founded. The distinction from a typical army being that the JSDF cannot be deployed internationally. The democratization of Japan was one step to fortify Asia against Russia. Another was for the U.S. to stay one step ahead of the USSR in the nuclear arms race. With the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, the U.S. had positioned themselves as a nuclear world power. But in order to keep that lead in the arms race, the American government continued to fund nuclear testing. The first tests to occur after Hiroshima and Nagasaki was called Operation Crossroads, held in mid-1946 in a small Pacific coral rim called Bikini Atoll. Not quite an island, an atoll is a ring-shaped coral reef that can include a string of islands. There are many atolls in the Marshall Islands, which are just 5,000 kilometers southeast of Japan. The U.S. gained control of these islands from Japanese forces during World War II, and, according to the Potsdam terms, the Allied powers could manage minor islands like the Marshall Islands to their discretion. Operation Crossroads was testing the effects of atomic bombs on naval ships, and given Bikini Atoll's remote location from typical sea and air traffic, it seemed an ideal location for the tests. The indigenous population at Bikini Atoll was approached and requested to move. The U.S. military explaining that the tests would better all mankind and protect the world from future conflicts. 
With this information, the Bikinians agreed to move to the Mongeric Atoll some 200 kilometers south. Now uninhabited, Bikini Atoll saw 23 nuclear tests total between 1946 and 1958, with the neighboring Inuitak Atoll seeing 43 tests. While the 1946 test Operation Crossroads was publicly announced and included a press junket, future tests were considered top secret in order to counter possible surveillance by the USSR. For Bikini Atoll, these tests resulted in the coral, fish, and nearby ecosystems becoming radioactive, and the soil so contaminated that food grown was itself radioactive. While this was inevitable given the frequency of testing, a major contributor to the radioactivity is cited as the Castle Bravo test in March 1954, conducted as part of Operation Castle. The military was testing designs for aircraft-delivered hydrogen bombs, as well as lithium deuteride as a fission fuel. It was suspected that the bomb for the Castle Bravo test would exceed ex expectations by 20% due to a recent discovery in the lab of the lithium deuteride fusion reaction. However, when Castle Bravo was detonated, it was actually 150% more powerful than expected. Scientists calculated it was around 1,000 times more powerful than the bomb that had struck Hiroshima just nine years prior. The nuclear fallout from Castle Bravo was significant. Due to the increased destructive power and wind patterns at the time, the fallout spread across Bikini Atoll and neighboring atolls. 239 civilians across the Marshall Islands were affected, as well as 28 Americans stationed at nearby Rungarik Atoll but none were so directly and immediately impacted as the 23 Japanese fishermen on the Daigo Fukuryu Maru fishing boat, or translated in English, the Lucky Dragon No. 5. While fishing for tuna, the Lucky Dragon was sailing near the pre-established danger zone around Bikini Atoll. The danger zone is the perimeter around the island determined by the military to keep civilians out of danger, as well as maintain secrecy around their tests. However, Castle Bravo was far more powerful, and this had a larger fallout radius than expected, and the Lucky Dragon was right in the middle of it. Fine, radioactive dust made of disintegrated coral and sand fell upon the crew in such amounts that they could scoop it off the boat's deck with their hands. Realizing the need to leave the area, the crew went to retrieve their nets, but this delayed their departure by about six hours and further exposed them and their catch to the radioactive ash. Later called death ash, the substance stuck to the crew's faces, hair, and inside their throats. Symptoms of radiation sickness began within 24 hours of their exposure, but they were still at least a week out from port. Their symptoms included red, mucus-leaking eyes, blisters, darkened and reddened skin, and hair loss. Once they returned to port, the catch was thrown away and the crew was taken to hospital. A crewman had kept a sample of the death ash, which Japanese scientists analyzed and confirmed to be the result of a hydrogen bomb. Lucky Dragon No. 5 and her crew became evidence proving that the U.S. was conducting secret nuclear weapons tests in Japan's backyard not even ten years after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and only two years after the American occupation had ended. The resulting anger from Japan was exacerbated by America's caginess around the whole incident. American officials first denied the incident, 
then claimed the fishermen were at fault for being within Bikini Atoll's danger zone, and then later suggested the fishermen were actually Russian spies. Meanwhile, American doctors were sent to study as well as help treat the Lucky Dragon crew. The Lucky Dragon incident sparked a grassroots anti-nuclear movement in Japan as well as abroad. When crewman Aichi Kubayama died from radiation sickness complications in 1955, the movement gained further traction. Kubayama is considered the first victim of the hydrogen bomb, spurring the National Council for Petition Movement to Ban Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs to hold their first annual Ban the Bomb Convention. Kubayama was the only crewman to die from the incident, but the other Lucky Dragon crew members faced a long recovery period from the radiation. Once healed, they also faced the same stigma Hibakusha faced, with many of the fishermen needing to move and change careers in order to just earn a livelihood. Eventually, the crew received a compensation settlement from the American government of 2 million yen each. However, the crew was not given Hibakusha status and therefore could not access the health and financial benefits for other bomb-affected people. The rationale for this decision was that those benefits and status were specific to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs, not this new hydrogen bomb. The Lucky Dragon No. 5 incident occurred two years after the end of the occupation, and it reignited much of the trauma and anger the Japanese people had previously bottled up. During the occupation, Japan was enabled to culturally and socially address their experience of World War II, their country's loss, and trauma from the atomic bomb due to the censorship laws. For seven years, 1945 to 1952, these experiences and feelings had no outlet unless it was through subversion. Once the occupation and its censorship had ended, Japanese creatives in art, literature, and, of course, film, could now directly address the effects of the war and the subsequent occupation. War films began to be produced, and they tended to be tragic and retrospective of war and violence. Dramas, both contemporary and historical, reflected on violence and the occupation. But anger about the occupation, the atomic bombs, and indeed the hydrogen bomb testing in the Pacific Islands, was sparked due to the Lucky Dragon incident, and now Japanese creatives had an outlet for it. Welcome to Scream Scene, a horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today, and uh, thank you for getting through that cold open. (laughs) Yes, and thank you, Sarah, for that in-depth cultural context. Yeah, to kind of explain why we did cold open... In the first place is because that subject matter can be a little heavy, and we felt it kind of needed its own space. So we got the opening, and now we get to talk about the fun stuff, like the movie. Yeah, so this week on Scream Scene, we are watching the original 1954 Godzilla, or Gojira in Japanese. Mm -hmm. First, right off the bat, I just want to say this is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal film. Um, It kicks off a whole new genre. It's Japan's first monster movie. It's the first, like, giant monster movie. 
um, it's a big deal. And also just want to say thank you to everyone for being patient as we took an extra week to prepare everything for you. Yeah, this is a movie that, like, not only is one of my favorite movies, but it's a movie that means a lot to me, and it was important for me to, like, give this movie the attention it deserves. I mean, you know, it's the first Godzilla movie, and Godzilla's a movie series that is still going today. today. And, you know, so it's a really big deal, very big pop culture icon character. Um, But he's also a character that I think is misunderstood a lot, especially by, like, casual mainstream, like, American understanding of him. And I think this initial movie doesn't always get the respect it deserves, especially from people who, like, haven't really seen it, whose, like, knowledge of Godzilla is just more from, like, cultural osmosis. And the very comedic slant that the movies get into in, like, the 60s and 70s as well. Yeah, and also the, like tradition of ragging on campy cheesy movies from the 60s and 70s right and being like oh ho ho such bad dubbing ho 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 yeah think of it as like someone making fun of the 1931 frankenstein movie because they saw the abbott and costello meet frankenstein movie right and just go into the 31 frankenstein thinking it's going to be funny as well exactly Not quite the best analogy, but it's close. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I'm going to say some things that are sort of commonly said about Godzilla, and I want... He's big, he's large, and in charge. Fair. Um, I want you to tell me if they are true or not. Okay. Okay. So, he is a Tyrannosaurus Rex. That is false. Correct. Um, Godzilla is a prehistoric intermediary uh, reptilian species that lives between land and sea and dwells at like the bottom of the ocean, but is not like explicitly like a, you know, particular species of dinosaur might even not count as a dinosaur given that it's supposed to be like a species that is still extant. It just lives at the bottom of the ocean. He is 400 feet tall. That depends what movie you're watching. Yep. In the original Godzilla, which we are watching today, Godzilla is 50 meters tall, or 135 feet. The idea that he's 400 feet tall comes from the dub of the movie, where that's just thrown out instead of the actual height of him, which is set in the Japanese version. Um, I guess just to, like... Make him sound more impressive, I guess? Exaggeration. But it's, like... A hell of an exaggeration, given that we see Godzilla next to, like, buildings and things. And he's 135 feet tall. And, in fact, the first on-screen live-action Godzilla to actually hit that 400 feet tall mark is Shin Godzilla from the most recent 2016 film. Which is dope. But, yes, uh, you are right in that his height has varied over time, depending on the movie you're seeing. Time and space. (laughs) Yes. He is green. That also depends what movie you're watching. He's not originally green. No, and he's not green most of the time, either. I would describe the color of Godzilla 99% of the time as being more of like a charcoal black. See, I would say, like, gray... 
Mm-hmm. Um, but in later movies, especially ones they bring in color, like they'd like to add in like a dark green, like gray greenness to him. Yeah. Um, but the posters love to paint him as green. Yeah, and I think culturally he's like remembered as being green. But even in the movies where he has a bit of a green tint to him, which is not a majority of them, I still wouldn't describe him as being green, or at least as green as, like, the toys and the art of him tends to be. Yeah. He breathes fire. Uh, depends what kind of, like, how are you defining fire? Because fire is just energy, Ben. (laughs) I'm defining fire as looking like flames. Ah. No, it's like an atomic breath. Yeah. So, lots of misconceptions that are easily disproven by watching a Godzilla movie. Of any stripe, basically. So I've mentioned that, like, this is one of my favorite movies. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, like, my history with this movie. But before I do, let's talk about yours. Oh, okay. Um, So when was the first time you saw, like, a Godzilla movie? Through you. And was it, was this movie the first one that you saw? Probably. Like, maybe I would have seen, like, clips. Like, I knew that Godzilla existed. Mm Kind of like you you just know that, like, James Bond exists or Batman exists. Yeah. Um, But I think my first time actually sitting down and watching one of the movies was with you. And I'm pretty sure I would be shocked if you showed me any other of the many movies of Godzilla before showing me this one. Yeah, I would have started you with the first one, because I always start things at the beginning. <laughs> yes. Like this podcast. Right, exactly. Very firm believer in chronological order. <laughs> and what did you think of it? Like, comparing what you kind of knew of Godzilla before seeing it, and what your thoughts on, like, what you thought Godzilla was, and then seeing this movie. This movie is a lot more somber than what you expect, given the cultural image of Godzilla, which is always fun to me how the origin story is so somber and bleak Mm. and has something to say uh, compared to, I forget which one it is, but like he's like on, he does a dance. Oh. He does like the hopping dance. Yeah. uh, Invasion of Astro Monster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, it's, I always think it's, like, so fun to see how a cultural icon, be it a figure like Godzilla or an actor, mm-hmm. um, morphs their image through time. Sure. But definitely this movie is a lot more somber than what I think someone without a certain context around it might be expecting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, since then, I think you've seen basically every Godzilla movie. Um, yes, I have of course seen every Godzilla movie multiple times. We own all of them in some form or another. Uh, certainly the last few years have been a real renaissance for being able to get a hold of like the original Japanese versions of these movies. Thanks criterion. And yeah, what would you say? Like, would you describe yourself as a Godzilla fan now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not as big of a fan as you, but I I guess you could call me a connoisseur of Godzilla (laughs) films, having seen all of them and getting upset online when people make fun of Shin Gojira, for example. Right. For, like, 
not making sense. Or, like, why don't they just shoot him? And it's like, guys, don't you understand certain contexts of things? Pay attention to the movie you're watching. Yes. Uh, So, (laughs) there's a reason why I am also participating in this podcast. Yeah, that's right. Very focused on giving cultural context to things. That's right. Um, Yeah, I am a big Godzilla fan. I uh, have been for a very long time. Like, I would describe Godzilla as one of my big fandoms alongside, like, Batman and, like, Star Wars and Star Trek. And I've been a Godzilla fan probably since I was around, I want to say, seven years old. And kind of what I remember about becoming a Godzilla fan was that, you know, there was the 1998 Roland Emmerich, Dean Devlin version that came out uh, starring Matthew Broderick. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge tentpole blockbuster film that they advertised to like an inch of its life. Like there was merchandise fucking everywhere for that movie. I already kind of had, you know, some cultural awareness of Godzilla anyways by that age. Cause you know, like, cause you're a nerd. Cause I was a human on earth, right? Like (laughs) they've got a little Godzilla toy in the living room on Roseanne. Like, you know, he's everywhere. I think probably actually my earliest like exposure to Godzilla is actually probably Reptar from Rugrats. Yeah. Cause Reptar is just a Godzilla parody. Right. Um, but in the like big marketing lead up to that movie, um, a company called Scimitar, released the, like, classic Ishiro Honda-directed Godzilla films on VHS. And I started buying them because the VHS tapes were, like, $6. Like, they were they were affordable as hell. <laughs> um, even at, like, age 7, I was who I am today, which is to say a pedant who has to start <laughs> things at the beginning. So the first one I bought was the first one, uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, from 1956. Oh, so women burr. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about that later, but, like, you couldn't actually get the Japanese version in North America until relatively recently. So I saw this movie in black and white, and by that time I'd already seen King Kong, so I was used to the idea of, like, a black and white monster movie. And, yeah, I just fell in love with it. It was it seemed like the dopest shit ever. And, you know, started getting the other tapes, watching them... And then went to go see the 98 American one for my eighth birthday. Because, like, that's the thing about these marketing campaigns, you know? Like, they happen far enough in advance that, like, yeah, I was able to become a Godzilla fan, like, in the intervening time, right? And then at eight, hating that movie because it was not Godzilla. It was not what I had become a fan of, right? Yeah, more inspired by than anything else. Yeah, more, more... We want a, the name value here. Um, from then on, like, just devouring anything Godzilla I could, working on completing the collection, you know, which then had to happen multiple times over, getting all the movies on VHS. Then, when they actually started coming out with the actual Japanese versions in North America, like, getting those on DVD, and then, like, Blu-ray happens, and you, you replace the set again, and, you know every time there's a better version available. So yeah, definitely been a fan of Godzilla and these movies for a very long time. So I'm very excited to talk about this original film. 
So the Godzilla series comes to us from Toho Studios in Japan. And Toho is one of the big, major Japanese movie studios. If you don't know them from Godzilla movies, you'll know them from being the studio that releases the films of Studio Ghibli. Um, they Seven Samurai. Yeah, most of Kurosawa's films are from Toho. You know, so they're a major big deal. And originally, Toho planned on making a Japanese-Indonesian co-production film, uh, the title of which in English would have been In the Shadow of Glory. And this was to be about the aftermath of the Japanese occupation of Indonesia. Would have been co-produced with Indonesian studio Perfini, but anti-Japanese sentiment in the country led to the Indonesian government denying visas for the Japanese filmmakers. So Toho's head of production, Iwao Mori, sent the film's producer, Tomoyuki Tanaka, to Jakarta to try and salvage the project. Uh, But it was to no avail. And so on the flight back, Tanaka was basically panicking because this movie was dead in the water And he needed to come back with something. So he figured, like, if he could come up with an idea for a movie, by the time he got back, that he could pitch to make instead, like, he wouldn't be fired, essentially. How long is the flight? Like, five hours? It's like, well, I mean, it's 1954, so it's not like jet planes, right? Like, they're... Air travel's a little slower. So, like, ten hours to come up with a thing. Yeah, if less than that. Um, On the flight back... He, they were flying over the ocean, and you know he was looking down at the dark seas, and he was reading his newspaper on the plane, and he came up with the idea of doing a giant monster film based on the Lucky Dragon number five incident in March. Just this idea of like, well, but what if it was like a big sea monster that came out of the ocean and attacked the fishing boat instead of the H-bomb? Tanaka was betting that combining the Japanese outrage about the incident and fears about nuclear proliferation with a giant monster premise would hit big at the box office. And he was basing that idea on the fact that in 1952, there had been a re-release of King Kong around the world that had been hugely successful. And then in 1953... There was an American film released called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is a Ray Harryhausen stop-motion monster movie about um, how nuclear testing in the Arctic awakens a dinosaur called a Redosaurus that was, like, frozen in the ice like Captain America. (laughs) And then it, like, swims down to New York and, like, attacks New York and smashes a bunch of stuff. Um, the key thing here, if you haven't seen Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, is that, like, the monster isn't radioactive, it's not mutated, it's just a dinosaur. Yeah, he just wakes up. That, yeah, was, like, freed from its icy slumber, right? <laughs> but Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was very, very successful as well. Um, not a horror movie. No, just a monster movie. Cool. And, in fact, if we want to talk about genre stuff with Gojira right now, um, we didn't watch King Kong. And we've definitely, like, drawn a line between, like, monster movie and horror movie. And mm-hmm. the idea that, like, something that is a monster movie can be a horror movie, but just because it's a monster movie doesn't necessarily mean it is a horror movie, right? Yeah. 
And you talked a little bit earlier about how Godzilla sets off this new genre. And it's a few different new genres, but we're watching this movie here because we feel it fits into horror. We will not be watching, like, future kaiju, tokusatsu, giant monster movies because, like we've talked about with other films in the past, this sort of creates a branch Mm -hmm. that branches off and away from horror in the sense that, like, you know, both Godzilla and, like, Godzilla vs. Megalon are both giant monster movies, but you would never describe Godzilla vs. Megalon as horror. Yeah. But um, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, definitely best described as a, just a giant monster movie. But it and King Kong had been hugely successful. So Tanaka was going like, okay, clearly I think there's a market I can tap into here. So during the flight, Tanaka wrote a story treatment for this idea. He pitched it to Iwao Mori when he got back. And the treatment was approved in April of 1954. So keeping in mind that the Lucky Dragon incident had happened in March. Yeah. So, the film's producer, Tomoyuki Tanaka, was born in Osaka in 1910, and he got into the film industry shortly after graduating from school. Uh, He initially joined Taisho Studios, which merged a year after he started working there with Toho in 1941. Tanaka rose to the position of producer in four years, and he produced over 200 films in his 60-year career with the studio. Wow. He produced every kaiju tokusatsu movie that Toho made until his death in 1997. So he's definitely, like, considered the father of that type of movie. And since I haven't defined those terms yet, um, kaiju is a Japanese word for monster. It's not the only Japanese word for monster, but it specifically means, like, a bestial monster. And it also means, like, a big monster, too, right? Well, specifically, actually, the word for giant monster is daikaiju. Okay, so big bestial monster. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so Gojira, um, Godzilla, and his fellow creatures are daikaiju. The idea that kaiju on its own means giant monster comes from Pacific Rim. Uh. Basically popularizing that word in English. Because before Pacific Rim, you rarely heard... English-speaking people using the word kaiju, and now it's like a common part of parlance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in Japanese, daikaiju would be what those are, those giant monsters. Uh, Tokusatsu, which is a word I've used a couple times now as well, uh, is a word that just means special effects. And in Japan, a special effects movie refers to like a very specific kind of movie, which brings together both your daikaiju movies like Godzilla but then also your, like, Super Sentai kind of stuff about, like, giant robots, you know, fighting and stuff, your Power Rangers kind of stuff. All of that's tokusatsu. So, when Tanaka first pitched this movie, it was obvious that it was going to be, like, a big special effects kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And there had never been a movie made like this in Japan before. So, in order to determine if the film was, like, financially feasible, if the effects were possible, uh, Iwao Mori turned to the head of Toho's effects department, Eiji Subaraya, to sort of say like, hey, can we, can we do this? <laughs> this is even possible. And Subaraya was immediately excited to get on board. 
So Eiji Tsuburaya was born in 1901, and he was interested in aviation from a very young age. He started building model airplanes at age 10, which would have been in 1911, so like pretty early on in the history of airplanes in general, you know? (laughs) He actually enrolled in pilot school, but the school shut down after the death of its founder in a plane crash. Oh, shit. So, Subaraya attended a trades school instead, getting a job in the R&D department of a toy company. Uh, He did very well there, and at a company party in 1919, he met a Japanese film director who decided to give Subaraya a job as an assistant camera operator. By 1926, he was a full-time camera operator at Shochiku Studios, and he began to innovate and improve and create new Japanese film techniques. That was really his big interest, especially bringing innovative techniques from the West to Japan, such as the first use of a camera crane in a Japanese film, as well as the first use of superimposition and other optical film effects in Japanese film. He served as an assistant camera operator on Kuruta Ichipeji, Uh, A Page of Madness, which we've watched for the show before. But his biggest cinematic inspiration was seeing King Kong when it was released in Japan for the first time in the early 30s. Um, From then on, he described his goal to others as being to produce a giant monster movie like King Kong. That was what he wanted to do. Yeah, so he's just like on fire excited about this movie, about this idea. Yeah. He became the head of the special effects department at Toho in 1938. During the war, Toho produced a lot of um, propaganda films for the government, and Tsuburaya created special effects for, like, dozens of war pictures. His sequences of the bombing of Pearl Harbor for the 1942 film The War at Sea from Hawaii to Malaya caused concern when it was seen by the Allies, Uh, Because they were so convinced by Subaraya's special effects, they thought they were real, and they were alarmed at how the Japanese could have gotten footage of the attacks on Pearl Harbor, and it fanned the flames about fears of Japanese spies in Hawaii. Oh, wow. I mean, like, kudos to him for for doing such a good job. Mm -hmm. This movie, the original Godzilla... Um, Tsuburaya basically created an entirely new style of special effects called suitmation. And the tremendous success of the film led to this larger tokusatsu genre, as I mentioned, which Tsuburaya is considered to be the founding father of. Uh, His suitmation technique became like the standard way to produce these daikaiju films, uh, even movies that weren't made at Toho, weren't made by Subaraya, all just adopted this method. And, you know, it also led into the idea of, like, the giant superhero genre, where you get Super Sentai and all of that stuff, which was a genre that Subaraya also pioneered when he created the television series Ultraman in 1966. Subaraya worked for Toho until his death in 1970 of heart failure, And his family actually maintained ownership of the Ultra Media franchise until 2007, when Subaraya Productions was sold. Uh, However, it still continues to produce Ultraman content to this day. The working title for the film, originally, 
was Project G for Giant. Sure. And after it was greenlit, Tanaka was given permission to minimize his attention on other films and focus everything he had on Project G. Senkichi Taniguchi, the director who was originally attached to In the Shadow of Glory, the Indonesian co-production that had fallen apart, was naturally assigned to Project G. But he declined the assignment as he could not take the premise seriously and thought the idea was stupid. So... (laughs) I guess he didn't mince words. Yeah. So, Tanaka brought in Ishiro Honda to direct the film, who accepted due to his interest in science and strange things, (laughs) as well as his wartime experiences, stating that he had no trouble taking the project seriously. Born in 1911, Honda's father and grandfather were both Buddhist monks, and Honda grew up living on the temple grounds. While his younger brothers received religious training, his older brother Takamoto was a military doctor and encouraged Honda to study science by sending Honda uh, like popular science magazines. Although Honda was greatly interested in reading about science, his grades in chemistry, biology, and math in school were very poor. Honda instead fell in love with movies Mm. and would sneak into theaters during the day to watch silent films. Takamoto wanted Honda to become a dentist, but instead Honda went into the film program at Nihon University in 1931 which was an underfunded and disorganized pilot program at the time that nonetheless Honda dedicated himself to with great energy. While in school, Honda was scouted by Iwayo Mori and brought in to work at Toho because Mori basically went in and like scooped up a bunch of students from this program to hire them to work entry-level positions. Uh, It was at this time that Honda made friends with fellow up-and-comer at Toho, Akira Kurosawa. He completed his degree at the film program while serving as a third assistant director at the studio. Cool. However, his film career kind of got put on hold because he was drafted into the military in 1934. In 1936, his commanding officer of his regiment, uh, attempted a coup against the civilian government, and that led to Honda and his regiment being stationed in Manchu Kuo, kind of as, like, punishment for their commanding officer's actions. And basically from then on, Honda would be pressed into service again and again and again, like, even after completing his mandatory tour of duty, he would come home for a couple months, and then it would be like, oh, no, JK, you're actually going back. Because they just kind of kept punishing the officers who were under this guy for, like, years afterwards. Oh, wow. In 1944, he was captured by the Chinese and held prisoner at a temple. Um, and while he was prisoner there, he became friends with the monks and they actually invited him to stay with them. And he was like, no, I have to go back to my wife and children. So when he was released, the monks gave him a collection of Chinese proverbs, which he would then later in life, always like write one at the back of every screenplay that he wrote. Oh, cool. Uh, on the way back home, 
he traveled through Hiroshima and saw firsthand the devastation of the atomic bomb there. He would suffer nightmares of the war about two to three times a week for the rest of his life, having spent six out of ten years from 1934 to 1945 on the front lines. Yeah. After the war, he returned to Toho as an assistant director, reuniting with his pre-war friend Akira Kurosawa, serving as Kurosawa's AD on the film Stray Dog in 1949. Before he could direct features, Toho assigned Honda to work on documentaries, including a project about divers that was the first Japanese film to successfully use underwater photography, utilizing an airtight, waterproof glass housing for the camera that was designed specially for that film. Honda's first feature film was going to be a war picture called Kamikaze Special Attack Troop, but Toho found the script that Honda wrote to be too grim too realistic, and too critical of wartime leaders. His first feature, therefore, ended up being The Blue Pearl, which came out in 1951 and was a docudrama about pearl divers, kind of adapting his earlier documentary to a narrative form. His fifth film, Edge of the Pacific, was a war picture, and it had special effects by Eiji Tsuburaya. Uh, So that was the first time that Honda and Tsuburaya would work together. And it would not be the last. Right. Gojira was Ishiro Honda's seventh feature film. He would go on to direct around 70 feature films in his career, including 24 additional tokusatsu films for Toho, of which seven were Godzilla sequels. He retired as a director after 1975's Terror of Mechagodzilla, which was the final film of the original Godzilla series. But when his friend Kurosawa returned to Japan to direct Kagamusha in 1980, Honda served as second unit director, and he would go on to be credited as counselor to the director for Kagamusha, Ron, Dreams, Rhapsody in August, and Madadayo, which were the final five Akira Kurosawa films. Basically, he served as, like, an assistant director, a creative consultant, an advisor, a production coordinator, just, like, general aid to Kurosawa for the making of these final five films. Okay. Ishiro Honda passed away on February 28th, 1993. Honda, Tanaka, and Tsuburaya decided to depict the movie's events in a documentary tone rather than sensationally as an attempt to avoid the perception in Japan at the time of sci-fi films as being silly and unworthy of critical attention. Sure. Tanaka hired science fiction writer Shigeru Kayama in May 1954 to expand Tanaka's outline about a giant octopus attacking fishing vessels into a story treatment. Kayama's version owes much more to Hollywood monster movies... Uh, than what the film would later become. The character of Dr. Yamane wears a cape and lives in a castle outside (laughs) of the city and only comes out at night. Oh, my God. And the monster was much more animal-like and had a King Kong-esque interest in women. Okay. So Ishiro Honda and screenwriter Takayo Murata then co-wrote the screenplay together based on this treatment Uh, by locking themselves in a hotel room for three weeks. (laughs) That's one way to focus in on a project. 
They redeveloped the characters, introducing the film's central love triangle between the characters of Ogata, Emiko, and Dr. Serazawa, and also created the film's slow build to the creature's reveal, as well as focusing the film on realism and nuclear allegory. Producer Tanaka said, The theme of the film, from the beginning, was the terror of the bomb. Mankind had created the bomb, and now nature was going to take revenge on mankind. While Honda said, If Godzilla had been a dinosaur, or some other animal, he would have been killed by just one cannonball. But, if he were equal to an atomic bomb, we wouldn't know what to do. So, I took the characteristics of an atomic bomb and applied them to Godzilla. The design of the creature went through many iterations. A gorilla-like appearance was considered in homage to King Kong, but Tanaka wanted the creature to be a sea monster from the depths. Sure. Who would attack fishing boats to tie into the Lucky Dragon incident. They basically were stuck with this idea of, like, a gorilla or a whale-like creature. So from the Japanese words for gorilla and whale, which are gorira and kujira, came the creature's name, gojira. So it's just, it's just a portmanteau. Kazuyoshi Abe developed the first design for gojira, but it was rejected for being too human or mammalian. Uh, it had, though, a very interesting head shaped like a mushroom cloud in the oh, design. Oh, that's neat. The finalized design for Gojira was the product of artists Taizo Toshimitsu and Akira Watanabe under the direction of Eiji Tsuburaya, although Abe would stay on the film to draw the movie's storyboards. Toshimitsu and Watanabe decided to model Gojira on a dinosaur, like the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms but not any kind of real dinosaur. They decided to combine elements from a Tyrannosaurus, an Iguanodon, and a Stegosaurus. Gee, I wonder what part of the Stegosaurus they took. <laughs> that being said, uh, Gojira's face was more closely based on a traditional Asian dragon with the kind of like... Uh, like the cheeks and the forehead. Yeah, like the snout that's yeah. more like animalistic than reptilian. Uh, and um, also, Gojira has, like, little pointed ears mm -hmm. on his head. Uh, and he has, like, yeah, that dragon snout. The creature was given skin with the texture of keloid scars, similar to those of the uh, Hibaksha. Um, keloid scars being, like, a kind of raised scarring that isn't unique to the nuclear bomb survivors. Uh, but certainly was very prevalent among them. Uh, and this was to show that Gojira had been the victim of the nuclear bomb as well. Tsuburaya had hoped to shoot the movie's special effects using stop motion, uh, the same as Beast from 20,000 Fathoms or King Kong. Yeah. Like, those were his big inspirations, so that's what he wanted to do. However, after taking stock of the resources of Toho at the time, he estimated that it would take seven years to complete the film if they tried to do it in stop motion. So instead, Tsuburaya developed the technique now known as suitmation, where the monster would be portrayed by a performer in a suit acting against scale miniature sets 
shot in slow motion to give the appropriate sense of scale to the monster's motions. The suit for Gojira, which was the first of its kind, was made by using bamboo and wire to create an interior frame, with metal mesh and cushioning over top of that for structure, followed by coats of latex for shape. Then, coats of molten rubber and then strips of latex were applied to create the monster's hide. All in all, the suit weighed 100 kilograms, or about 220 pounds. Oh my god. See, like, the base structure of, like, bamboo and wire. Cool, okay, that's movable. Or, like, that's, like, liftable. But by the end, it's like, oh. Yeah. Unlike, you know, like a Disney mascot costume or something where you see through the mouth, um, the Gojira suit had holes poked in the neck. And so the performer's head is roughly where the neck is, and you look out through the neck. And then so those holes don't show up on film, there's a layer of, like, black, like, satin between the performer's face and the outer hide. You know, so you're not seeing the eyes through there or anything like that. Um, And then you're, you know, performing this on a sealed soundstage in the Tokyo summer under those stage lights. And you're having to move faster than you normally would. Right. In a 220-pound suit. So two stuntmen were hired to portray Gojira. Haruo Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka. Ultimately, however, Tezuka couldn't handle the intense physical demands of the role, and so Nakajima became the primary performer. Born on January 1st, 1929... New Year's baby! Nakajima had served as a gunner on bomber planes during World War II, so he was used to being in confined spaces for long periods of time. In very stressful situations. He found it difficult to get work after the war, so in 1949 he decided to enroll in acting school on, like, a whim. In 1949 he was cast as a background detective in Stray Dog (laughs) by Akira Kurosawa, and that began his career as a stunt performer. He would appear in samurai films like Seven Samurai and The Hidden Fortress. After volunteering to be set aflame for Honda and Tsuburaya's World War II film Eagle of the Pacific, he caught their attention and won their recommendation to portray Gojira. Yeah, you're, you're bound to catch attention if you're on fire. <laughs> to prepare for the role, he watched Subaraya's personal copy of King Kong and also observed the movements of large animals at the Tokyo Zoo. Nakajima believed that the reason he was indispensable to the studio was his endurance in the suit. And therefore, as such, over his 22-film career playing kaiju, he never complained always had a smile, was always up to anything you wanted to try, even when he was being burnt or passed out in the suit or drowning in the water tank, whatever. Just keep going with a smile on your face and they'll keep hiring you, was basically (laughs) his theory. He portrayed Godzilla a total of 12 times, and after he retired, he made it a point to befriend and mentor his successor in the role, Kenpachiro Satsuma. When kaiju battles began to happen in the second Godzilla film, Nakajima began to choreograph them for himself 
uh, in coordination with Subaraya, and he would continue to do so in all the films he performed in. That's cool. He passed away in 2017 at age 88, and the 2019 American film Godzilla, King of the Monsters was dedicated to his memory. Nice. The original Godzilla suit was so heavy and so constrictive that ultimately it turned out to not be very usable. Uh, <laughs> so in order to have it work, it was cut in half at the waist and then like used for shots that did not show Gojira's whole body so that Nakajima could wear one half or the other depending on the shot. So you'll nice. see pictures of him with just the legs and the tail, and they're held up by suspenders. <laughs> it's so cute. I love that, those pictures. A second, identical suit was then made that was much lighter. Uh, but even in that suit, Nakajima was still only able to withstand it for three minutes at a time before passing out. Really? Yeah. Later suits would be much thinner and lighter and more movable, but the original Godzilla was a bulky, bulky boy. When looking out through the holes in the neck, he would be completely blind when he was underwater, because there was just not enough light basically getting in at that point. And he would have to be in these big water tank pits to like come up out of the water to attack the model boats. And like he's down underwater in a several hundred pound suit, and you're breathing through small, tiny holes. Yeah. What? How did he not die? If you're wondering how he got in and out of the suits... Um, Carefully. Sure. The separation point is in the spines. Oh. So so they open up at the back where the spines are. Yeah. Um, and obviously, therefore, you need an entire crew's worth of people's help getting into and out of the suits. Yeah. Um, when I said that he would pass out after three minutes, depending on what they were doing, people would sometimes not notice that he had passed out because you couldn't... It would just look like he was just standing there in the suit. Yeah. Basically. Um, he ended up losing 20 pounds making the movie just with having to, like, have the physical endurance to play the role. Sure. Honda and Tsuburaya worked in tandem to plan the special effects sequences early on, with each director visiting each other's sets for lighting reference and to ensure that the film had a consistent visual style and editing rhythm across all sequences. The miniature set of Tokyo was built on a 1-25 to scale using blueprints of the actual buildings. Nice. The miniatures were fully detailed with interiors, so that when they were destroyed, they would actually crumble realistically and not just look like empty... Cardboard boxes. Right. Now, granted, they weren't made of cardboard. They were actually made of wooden boards reinforced with plaster and then chalk. Uh, the plaster so that it would look yeah. like a building and the chalk there so that so it would be you'd have the dust. dust. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and these buildings would have small cracks and fractures pre-placed in them so that when... Nakajima destroyed them, they would crumble and break more easily. Also in, like, a way that the film crew would be able to, like, anticipate. Yes. Yeah, so you know, you they could... know that the building's going to fall this way rather than, like, that way. Right. Japanese audiences of the time would have been able to recognize the landmarks of Tokyo in this film. I think that's one of the things that doesn't translate so well when you're, um, like, a North American person watching this movie is you don't know all the famous buildings that you're seeing get destroyed. Yeah. Like, you might 
notice one or two, but not like, oh, that's the office building I passed on my way to work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The buildings destroyed by Gojira's uh, atomic breath had explosives placed inside them and were coated with gasoline. That sounds safe. (laughs) To spray the mist that acted as Gojira's atomic breath, a small-scale hand-operated mechanical puppet of Gojira's head, shoulders, and arms was created, which could then be connected with a spray nozzle that would fire the mist out of the mouth. So they're not putting the whole suit at risk of something going horribly wrong. Yeah. Frame-by-frame optical animation was used for the monster's glowing dorsal spines before he would breathe his atomic breath, and the film involved much more optical work than was common for Japanese films of the time, requiring Toho to hire 400 new staff. Whoa. The film's budget of 100 million yen was three times the average budget of a contemporary Japanese film, slightly less than the 125 million yen budget for Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai made that same year. Also by Toho. Yes. So Toho is just shelling out the money. And in fact, those two films were the second and third most expensive films Toho made that year. The most expensive film was uh, Miyamoto Musashi, the first entry in the Samurai trilogy starring Toshiro Mifune. These budgets were still not a large amount by Hollywood standards, um, but they were absolutely A-picture budgets by Japanese standards. Like, Gojira was not a cheap, shitty... Columbia picture with Boris Karloff as the mad scientist again. Yeah, exactly. Like, in the context of the Japanese film industry... Gojira was a blockbuster, not a B movie, mm-hmm. uh, even if it was, you know, regarded as a B movie in America. Ijusubaraya's unit shot for seventy-one days uh, to do the special effects sequences. Yeah. On the first day of principal photography on the main set, Ishiro Honda addressed the crew and told anyone who did not feel convinced by the script to leave the project now, believing that the film would only work if it was made by people who had total confidence in it. We've seen that that's the case, though. He said, quote, If our hearts were not in it 100%, it would not have worked. We wanted Godzilla to possess the terrifying characteristics of an atomic bomb. This was our approach without any reservations. The shoot was largely done on the Toho lot in Tokyo, but for the scenes on Odo Island, the crew went on location. And Honda's crew shot for 51 days. The film's score by Akira Ifukabe would become extremely iconic. Mm-hmm. Used frequently throughout the franchise from this point forward. Yes. Born in 1914 in Hokkaido, Akira Ifukabe spent his childhood among a mixed population of indigenous Ainu people and Japanese people, and would be strongly influenced by Ainu music in his career. He decided he would become a composer at age 14 when he heard Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring on the radio. That's cool. Was he like, I could do better? Or was it like, this is amazing? Yeah, it was, this is amazing. It was inspiration. (laughs) 
studied forestry at Hokkaido University and composed in his spare time, completely self-taught. His 1935 composition, Japanese Rhapsody, won first prize by unanimous vote at an international competition for young composers. During the Second World War, he was appointed by the government to study the elasticity and vibratory strength of wood. He suffered radiation exposure when he was exposed to x-rays during the testing due to lead shortages in Japan at the time, meaning that there was not adequate shielding. He was hospitalized due to the radiation poisoning, and while lying in his hospital bed, he was shocked to hear one of his own compositions on the radio being used to back the announcement of the arrival of General MacArthur in Japan to formalize the nation's surrender. Oh, shit. He focused on music after the war, composing his first film score in 1947. Over the next 50 years, he composed over 200 scores, of which his most famous is that for Gojira. He taught at the Tokyo University of the Arts, becoming head of the College of Music's ethnomusicology department. That's cool. He was awarded the Order of Culture and the Order of the Sacred Treasure by the Japanese government. In addition to his 26 tokusatsu movie scores, of which 11 were Godzilla pictures, he also scored the original Tale of Zatoichi film in 1962 and nine of its sequels. Akira Fukube passed away in 2001 at age 91. In addition to creating the memorable themes for Godzilla in this film, Fukube also created the key sound effects for the creature. At first, Toho's sound department attempted to create Gojira's roar by combining and manipulating the sounds of various real animal roars, similar to how King Kong's roar was created and how years later the roars of the dinosaurs in the Jurassic Park movies would be made. However, none of these were considered acceptable because they all still just sounded like real animals. Yeah. And Honda wanted something that sounded unique. So Ifukube created Gojira's roar with his instruments by rubbing a resin-coated leather glove through the loosened lower strings of a double bass. Ifukube also created the sound effects of Godzilla's footsteps, uh, which serve as the warning that he's coming in the movie um, years <laughs> There's before. There's no uh, cups of water. Right, thing. but definitely like that would not be a thing in Jurassic Park if it was not a thing in Godzilla. Um, and Fukube created the sound effects of the footsteps by striking an amplifier box with a like big drum baton. The cast of the film was mostly made up of young nobodies, anchored by, like, one famous character actor, which is, like, a pretty solid casting strategy for any, like, big blockbuster sci-fi movie, I think. Yeah. The film's lead was played by Akira Takarada. Why do you say lead like that? Well, (laughs) Takarada was born in 1934 in Japanese-occupied Korea. He moved to Japan with his family in 1948, and he joined Toho's New Face program in 1953, which was this, like, widespread effort on Toho's part to find, like, new young actors to inject into the film industry. His first leading role was as Ogata in Gojira, and he was very excited to get the lead in this movie as his first major role. But upon arrival at the set, the crew was quick to inform him 
not to get too much of a big head, because Gojira was the lead, the true lead of the film. <laughs> Takarada became a very popular actor uh, at Toho, owing to his youth and charisma and handsome looks. Uh, he appeared in nearly 140 film roles over the course of his career, including six more Godzilla films, uh, including a cameo in the 2014 American version. He is also the Japanese voice of Jafar. Oh, like, that's neat. In Aladdin, in Return of Jafar. Yeah. In the Kingdom Hearts games. Yeah. yeah. His co-star in the film is Momoko Kochi, who was born in 1932 and also joined Toho's New Face program in 1953. And for her, Gojira was also her big break. Uh, she plays the role of Emiko Yamane, and she appeared in other Toho sci-fi films in the 1950s, but left the studio in 1958 to avoid typecasting, and instead focused on a stage career as a Shakespearean actress. Good for her. In 1995, she reprised her role from the original Godzilla in Godzilla vs. Destoroya, her only other appearance in the series. She passed away in 1998 of colon cancer. In the dramatic role of Dr. Serizawa uh, is actor Akihiko Hirata, who was born in Seoul, Korea in 1927 as Akihiko Onoda. He was educated at Tokyo University's School of Interior Design, but uh, he joined the film studio Shintoho as an assistant director under his brother Yoshiki Onoda, which necessitated his name change to Akihiko Hirata. He joined Toho as an actor under the New Face program, and he originally auditioned for the role of Ogata, uh, but instead won the role of Serizawa. He was disappointed at the time because Ogata was seen as, like, the lead, because he's the romantic leading character. But, in all honesty, Serizawa is the better role. Yeah. You get an eye patch. <laughs> After the original Godzilla, he would appear in 20 tokusatsu films in his 156 film career, including six Godzilla sequels. He appeared in the final film of the original series, 1975's Terror of Mechagodzilla, and he announced the series' return at a 1984 press conference, but he would pass away from lung cancer before production on The Return of Godzilla could begin. That's too bad. The respected character actor who anchors the cast is Takeshi Shimura, who was born in 1905 as Shoji Shimazuki to a traditionally samurai family. In school, he excelled in English, literature, and poetry. He befriended some playwrights and university and gained a love of theater from them and began acting in 1928, uh, changing his name basically to distance himself from his, like, Samurai family. Yes. He made his film debut in 1934 and quickly became a popular and highly regarded actor, appearing in 100 films from 1936 to 1942. So before, even a decade before this movie. Mm -hmm. But he was arrested by the Japanese secret police for his leftist theater associations. <laughs> he would only be released thanks to the efforts of his wife as like a character witness on his behalf. In 1943, he appeared in Akira Kurosawa's debut film, Sanshiro Sugata, 
and would go on to appear in 21 of Kurosawa's 30 films, uh, ending with 1980's Kagamusha before Shimura's death in 1982. Notable roles for Shimura in Kurosawa's oeuvre are Drunken Angel, Stray Dog, Scandal, Rashomon, Ikiru, and Seven Samurai. He would reprise his Godzilla role as Dr. Yamane in the direct sequel, and he would appear in six more tokusatsu films, performing in a total of about 300 roles over the course of his career. Yeah, he's, like, instantly recognizable. Um, If you see him, Toshiro Mifune isn't usually far behind. Yeah, very much so. But he's not in this movie. Gojira premiered in Nagoya on October 27th, 1954, and it would be released nationwide on November 3rd. It was a huge hit, earning 183 million yen. Approximately 10% of the Japanese population in 1954 saw the film. It was Toho's number three movie that year, behind Seven Samurai and Miyamoto Musashi. Initial critical reaction, however, was negative. Critics had predicted the film would flop and accused it of exploiting the tragedies of World War II and the Lucky Dragon incident. Yeah, I can see where they're coming from with that. The movie was criticized because, quote, giant monsters do not exist, and, quote, living organisms cannot breathe fire. You know, true. (laughs) I don't think that should be held against the film, but they aren't. Incorrect. I think it's really <laughs> funny that, like, because this is the first homegrown, like, Japanese sci-fi monster movie, like, this movie got criticized because it wasn't set in the real world and wasn't, like, realistic. When, like, nowadays, like, fantasy sci-fi movies are such, like, a huge pillar of, like, what we think of as, like, Japanese film and television, you know? Part of why I wonder if... This is why maybe they're bringing this up, is because the film was shot in, like, that realistic documentary type of style. Mm. I think, you know, Tanaka and Honda wanted the film to be serious so that it would get, like, actual consideration by critics. And I think the critical reaction instead was like, oh, trying to be too big for your britches, huh? Like, (laughs) trying to say you're a serious movie, well... If you're a serious movie, how come you got a giant monster in you, huh? (laughs) However, uh, critical opinion began to shift as the movie's ticket sales rose throughout the year, and the film would be nominated for Best Picture by the Japan Movie Association at sort of the... Japanese Oscars? Yeah, what the equivalent of the Japanese Oscars were at the time. Uh, It would lose to Seven Samurai. You know, that's fair. Uh, But it did win Best Special Effects. Also fair. In 1955, the film began playing in theaters servicing Japanese communities in the United States under the then-accepted Romanized title of Godzilla. So, the difference between Gojira and Godzilla has to do with how Japanese was Romanized in the 1950s. And so this was a standard Romanization of the period that came from Toho, the official English translation or English version of the name Gojira is Godzilla, except that the idea of pronouncing it Godzilla is an English speaker's idea of pronouncing it. As a transliteration from Japanese, what's happening here is Go stays Go, Ji 
J-I becomes G-D-Z-I, and Ra becomes La, L-L-A. So if we were saying it in a Japanese style, it would be like Godzilla, right? Uh, but of course, an English speaker is going to look at that and see Godzilla. Yeah. After seeing the film at one of these, like, little Tokyo screenings, U.S. schlock producer Edmund Goldman approached Toho about acquiring the rights for a general U.S. release. Uh, Goldman purchased the U.S. rights from Toho for $25,000. Then Goldman sold the film to Jewel Enterprises to dub, re-edit, and revise the picture for American audiences. So essentially, Goldman flipped it. Yeah. Jewel producers Harold Ross and Richard Kay had the idea to shoot new scenes to place an American character in the story. The thing to understand at the time is that what Japanese movies would be shown in America would be shown either at these, like, theaters that... um, catered to Japanese audiences, Japanese-American audiences, or, like, art house theaters, or, like, film festivals. Movies like Rashomon and Seven Samurai and stuff like that, at the time, weren't being shown in mainstream theaters and weren't being shown dubbed, right? Part of this is that, you know, in 1955, most Americans still thought of the Japanese as the enemy. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a film that wanted you to be sympathetic for, like, Japanese characters with this destruction coming down upon them, like, they weren't really sure how to sell that idea. So the notion instead became to create an American character who could be inserted into the story, who would be friends with the Japanese characters to create that line of sympathy. Then, Jewel Enterprises made a deal with distributor Joseph E. Levine of Embassy Pictures to put up $100,000 for the film to finance this, like, revision work. Levine invested in a big marketing campaign for the movie under the title Godzilla, King of the Monsters. This marketing campaign was extremely aggressive. Jewel, meanwhile, hired Terry Morse, who was a renowned film doctor, uh, basically an editor who gets called in to, like, fix up a movie when it's got troubles, to script the new sequences around the Japanese scenes and then direct them. Terry Morse was paid $10,000 for this work, as was the film's new star, a still pre-Perry Mason, Raymond Burr, who... Another beefy boy. Yes. Uh, You can hear more about Raymond Burr in our episode on Bride of the Gorilla, Um, but he was still not quite yet Perry Mason at this point, And he was brought in to portray the film's new leading character, American reporter Steve Martin. (laughs) No relation to the comedian. Yeah, the comedian wasn't a thing at all in the 1950s, right? Like, I don't even know. He was probably like a kid. Yeah, yeah. I don't even like how old he would have been. Um, They only could afford to pay Burr for a single day. He was paid $10,000, the same as the movie's director. And in order to get the most out of that and get all the scenes they needed from him, they made that day a 24-hour day. Dang. Burr took the role because he actually really liked the movie and believed very strongly in its anti-nuclear message. While the story's explicitly anti-American sentiments were dropped, the film's anti-nuclear themes were retained, 
as was the movie's serious tone. Morse decided to shoot Burr as having most of the film's Japanese dialogue translated for him as an interpreter as he observed scenes, rather than dubbing the movie. Most of the movie's dubbed dialogue appears in scenes that Burr's character narrates to other people. Body doubles were hired and editing tricks were used, so it would appear as though Burr was speaking with the original Japanese cast in key scenes. Ultimately, the American version is very clever in its construction, to the point where most audiences watching it believed that Raymond Burr went to Japan and was part of the original shoot with the Japanese cast. The script is very respectful of the Japanese film, even as it removes explicit topical references like the radioactive tuna caused by American testing, um, just the idea of, like, American nuclear testing in general. In the American version of the movie, like, Godzilla's still awoken by nuclear testing. It's just not mentioned who's doing that testing. Um, But the more general anti-nuclear message is maintained. Part of the dub cast for the movie included extremely prolific Chinese-American actor James Hong, who dubbed both Ogata and Serizawa. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, was released April 27th, 1956, on a double bill with Prehistoric Women. (laughs) After spending $125,000 on its production, the film made $2 million at the box office, becoming the first Japanese film to become a commercial success in the United States, and the fourth foreign film in U.S. history to earn over a million dollars in the United States. Basically, this movie enabled later films to be released dubbed. Like, this enabled American audiences to accept the idea of foreign films dubbed, and to accept the idea of, like, Japanese lead characters. You know, later Japanese or Chinese movies that came to America wouldn't need to have you know, the new American character inserted. People would just be okay with Japanese lead characters dubbed, largely because of the success of this film. Cool. The film got overwhelmingly negative reviews from American critics. Um, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times called it um, intensely awful, I believe. Jeez Louise. Uh, Similar to... not made for you, dude. Similar to the reviews that the Japanese version got. Um, but opinions of the film got more positive over the years as people began to recognize the significance of, you know, a film about nuclear annihilation made by the Japanese. Yeah. The Maybe also because they saw the money it was making. Sure, yeah. (laughs) The commercial success of Godzilla King of the Monsters led to it becoming the version of Godzilla that was seen internationally. You know, UK distributors came for this version, not the Japanese original. Sure. In many ways, the Raymond Burr revision superseded the Japanese original internationally. Uh, When asked if he was offended by the changes made to the movie, Ishiro Honda said that in fact he was amused, uh, since they were attempting to imitate American monster movies anyways. (laughs) For 50 years, Honda's original film was unavailable in English-speaking territories, with the King of the Monsters version being the version of the original that most fans grew up knowing, uh, including myself. It was in 2004 that the Japanese original was released for the first time in the United States in theaters. 
uh, across the country, and then on DVD in a new restoration that included both versions uh, from classic media. That's cool that it was in theaters. Yeah. Uh, This was, of course, for the 50th anniversary. Yeah. After the 2004 release, it was re-released in theaters again in 2014 to promote the 2014 American version by Gareth Edwards. Once the original Japanese version became available, the previous high opinion of King of the Monsters kind of soured. Um, You'll see now, like, people online, like, reviewers online talking about King of the Monsters, accusing it of, like, bastardizing the Japanese original and being this, like, Americanization that, like, pulled all of the message and meaning out of the movie and made it silly and campy, kind of as if the American version was responsible for Godzilla becoming known as, like, a campy, silly figure in the U.S.? No, that happened because that's where the character went as the years went on. Yeah, I would... Um, I'm not going to put, like, no blame on American dubbing of certain movies and stuff, but it's it's not like things happen in a vacuum. Yeah, I would encourage those looking to see this movie for the first time to seek out the original, but the American version is not a bastardization. Um, it is a revision, and it's a revision that would have been necessary, because there's no way you would have been able to put out a movie in America that was like, fuck Americans for fucking over us, the Japanese, and expect to make money off of it, which was the thing that the people making it wanted to do. Yeah. I still think the Raymond Burr version is worth seeing. I think some of the dialogue in it um, is really good, even improves on the Japanese original in a couple of spots, in my opinion. And the impression of Godzilla as like a campy character like you said, comes from those later movies and and in a large part comes from the release of Godzilla vs. Megalon in the United States. Because that movie in the United States uh, came out in theaters and then when the TV rights were bought, it was like given this big, huge, promoted network TV primetime screening that a lot of Americans would have seen. And like Godzilla vs. Megalon is a crappy movie. (laughs) Um, but like that was the impression that a lot of Americans had growing up of Godzilla in the seventies. And in addition, like the Hanna-Barbera cartoon and stuff like that. Yeah. The success of the original Godzilla, as we've kind of already mentioned, led to a sequel in 1955, uh, the very next year, Gojira no Gyakushu, uh, or Godzilla Raids Again in English. And today there are 29 live action Japanese Godzilla films three live-action American films, and three animated movies. Godzilla is the longest-running, still-ongoing film franchise and birthed the entire genre of daikaiju and tokusatsu and is referenced throughout pop culture ever since. The most recent Japanese live-action Godzilla film, 2016's Shin Gojira, even won Best Picture at the Japanese Academy Awards. Take that, Seven Samurai. Today, both versions of the film, Gojira and Godzilla King of the Monsters, are available on Blu-ray and DVD from the Criterion Collection, and you can also stream them on the Criterion channel. So take that, people who think it's a dumb, campy movie. It's, <laughs> it's in the Criterion Collection. Listen, Criterion put out this big, big Godzilla collection thing. Yeah. Um, and there's some 
can't be bad. Yeah, yeah. That. I mean, it's the original Showa series of Godzilla films, so yeah, even the campy ones are in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, so, so take that. Take that, people who don't like fun. Yeah. Campiness does not equal, like, poor quality. Or, like, that it's not deserving of your... Attention. Right. Cool. Well, uh, we have three, I think, at the minimum, different ways of watching this, Ben. Yeah, we have three copies. I don't have my old Scimitar VHS anymore, but I do have the Classic Media DVD release from 2004, the Criterion Collection DVD release, and then the Criterion Blu-ray set of the Complete Showa series. Yeah. So hopefully folks can find a way to watch along. Get a subscription to the Criterion channel is really what you should do. Yeah, that's just good advice no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're, You're going to hear a brief musical break. Go to the bathroom, grab some popcorn, because it's been a long intro, but thanks for sticking around, and uh, we're looking forward to watching this movie with you. See you on the other side, everybody. back everybody to scream scene we just finished watching gojira directed by ishiro honda from 1954 and we already gave away that we like this movie quite a bit yes yes i think it's very clear that we have some biases sure 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 but i think they're well earned yeah i mean is it a bias if you're right yes (laughs) i couldn't even tell you like how many times i've seen this movie i mean Probably into the double digits, if not more. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're like counting the Japanese version and the American version as like the same movie, which kind of are, kind of aren't. Um, regardless, uh, I know this movie very well. Yes. However, um, if the listeners aren't as familiar with the ins and outs of the story of Gojira, uh, let's. Talk about the plot, and uh, yeah, then we can start talking about some specifics. Cool. So we open near the fictional Odo Island, where we see a Japanese uh, salvage ship out on the open water, and we see it get destroyed. There's a bright light, a boom, and then kind of just destruction. It's a big mystery what has caused the sinking of this ship, the shipping salvage company sends some other ships to go investigate, but they're also destroyed. Um, even fishing boats in the area seem to be attacked, as well as at the same time, the fishing in the area is poor. The People are just not catching anything. There's a lot of news coverage about this mystery, um, so people are coming to Odo Island to learn a bit more. Now, a reporter finds an elder in Odo who says that Odo Island has a legend of this creature named Godzilla, who you would have to appease by sending a a girl out on a raft in order for the fishing to come back. Um, So that's what he thinks it is. That night, something attacks the village. Uh, There's giant footprints and houses are completely smashed in, but there's also reports of maybe it was a typhoon. 
people aren't really sure. So the government and the uh, shipping company work together to send in a team of experts to figure out what's going on. So during this time, we meet Hideto Ogata, who is a representative of the shipping company, Dr. Yamane, who is a paleontologist. Uh, we also meet Yamane's daughter, Emiko, who is um, also the girlfriend of Ogata, which makes it a little awkward because she's also the fiancé of a Dr. Serizawa, who we meet in passing, but he's not part of this expedition. So Ogata, Yamane, and Emiko head to the island where, um, along with other experts uh, on the expedition, they find that the footsteps are radioactive. Uh, in fact, there's a ton of radioactivity on the side of the village that was attacked, but none on the other side. And Yamane also finds a trilobite, you know, a prehistoric creature. Um, but this isn't fossilized. This was actually just, like, smushed under one of the footsteps. With this evidence, the expedition is feeling pretty confident that, yeah, we don't think it was a typhoon. When the village's alarm bells go up and Godzilla shows up. Um, now everyone is heckin' terrified because it's this 50-meter-tall dinosaur coming at you. But he heads back into the water, um, and the expedition comes back to Tokyo. And Yamane shares his theory, which is that Godzilla is from the Jurassic or Cretaceous period, when there was an amphibious creature kind of going from water onto land. Now, Godzilla managed to survive extinction by being in a very deep underwater cave where there are other prehistoric creatures, as proven by the trilobite, but underwater hydrogen tests have awoken Godzilla. Um, and even more than just awoken, he has been exposed to this radiation, shown by the fact that radiation follows him wherever he goes. Now, Yamane wants to study Godzilla and figure out how this creature has managed to survive these hydrogen bomb tests, um, and perhaps we can learn something about how to better resist radioactivity, but the government votes to kill it instead, or at least attempt to kill. First, they try using depth charges in the Odo waters, but that actually just drives Godzilla into Tokyo Bay, where Godzilla surfaces and attacks Tokyo. Meanwhile, the reporter that we've been seeing, uh, his name is Hagiwara, um, he is given an assignment to talk to Dr. Serizawa because his research might be able to be used as a weapon against Godzilla. But Serizawa is kind of a recluse. No one knows anything about his research, and the reporter can't even get in to see him. So, Hagiwara goes to see Emiko and says, Hey, you're engaged, right? Can you introduce me to Serizawa? Now, Emiko is in the midst of a love triangle um, between Ogata, who, you know, they're pretty close, and this engagement to Serizawa, which is implied that it was um, like a betrothal, and she really sees Serizawa as more of an older brother. So she wants to break off the engagement so she can marry Ogata. And Ogata is fully aware of all of this. So Emiko says, yes, uh, to the reporter, I'll take you to see Serizawa, and this is perfect, I can go and break off the engagement that, 
them as well. She manages to get Sarazawa to see the reporter, but Sarazawa does not share anything about his research. He says he doesn't really have anything to share. Um, I don't know how you might have heard about my work, but it's nothing to do with anything like this. Like, I can't help you. After the reporter leaves, he shares his work with Emiko, swearing her to secrecy. He brings her down into his basement lab, and it's very, like, mad scientist type of lab with um, strict fade-in equipment and alchemy bulbs, glasses. Beakers? Beakers is the word. Um, Alchemy beakers and... Chemistry beakers. Just like, he's (laughs) not doing alchemy. He's just, it's just actual scientific equipment. Yeah. And um, lots of fish tanks. So he shows her what his work is. He plops a pill into a fish tank and then the camera stays on Emiko's face um, during this whole experiment. Uh, and she is, like, pulled back because it's dangerous. And she screams in horror and turns away. But she's been sworn to secrecy. Uh, she won't even tell her father, she says. Now, Godzilla has been attacking Tokyo repeatedly. The Japanese self-defense force decides to try, basically, an like an electrical fence um, in order to stop Godzilla from coming further inland, but this drives Godzilla to unveil his atomic breath and kind of further destroy Tokyo, to the point where the cityscape is completely aflame. With the electrical fence failing, there are attempts to destroy Godzilla using tanks and other artillery, but again, that fails. Now, Dr. Yamane is quite dismayed about all of this, he still really wants to study how Godzilla is resisting radiation, and even further now, because this atomic breath is clearly not a natural step of Godzilla's evolution. But Ogata disagrees. He says that the threat that Godzilla poses outweighs what they could even learn. And this creates a a very strong butting of heads between Ogata and Gamane, to the point where Ogata is told to get out of the house. So... Ogata and Emiko uh, can't break the news to their dad about, hey, we were wanting to get married. The next day, we see that hospitals are overrun with casualties, um, many of them suffering radiation sickness, and Emiko is there volunteering to try to, you know, help. And she is just so distraught about all of this destruction that she decides to tell Ogata about Serizawa's weapon. And this is when we get a flashback and we actually see what the experiment was. So Sarazawa has been developing what he calls an oxygen destroyer. This pill thing goes into the fish tank and it starts releasing this chemical, which um, dissolves the oxygen atoms, suffocating the fish, and then also the fish bones uh, disintegrate as well. So the reason he's been keeping it a secret is because that is a terrifying weapon to the point where Emiko is horrified just at this small demonstration. And Sarasawa doesn't want to unveil this research until he's found like a positive use for it, something that can be productive rather than just a weapon. She tells this to Ogata. And so together they go to see Sarasawa to say like, we need to use this against Godzilla. Like nothing else is working. Do you see the devastation that's coming from his attacks? Like, we need to do something. And Serizawa is just 
adamant again and again, just, no, I'm not going to be responsible for my work becoming a weapon of mass destruction. Because even if we use it against Godzilla, who's to say that a politician or uh, another scientist figures out what my work has done um, and then uses that for a weapon of mass destruction? These words come to a, an actual blow with a fist fight between Sarazawa and Ogata, but it's immediately broken up and we have kind of a somber moment of you know, them kind of explaining their points. And then that's interrupted by um, a news broadcast. Um, the news has been showing the destruction from Godzilla, and at this point there's a special broadcast of schoolgirls singing a prayer to you know, protect Japan, um, to offer solace to those who have been affected. Um, and it, it's quite uh, heartbreaking of a moment. upon hearing this and seeing the destruction, decides, okay, we'll use the oxygen destroyer to destroy Godzilla, um, but this will be the only time that this is used. I'm going to burn my notes. This is the first and only time the oxygen destroyer will be used. So the Coast Guard, along with Sarazawa, Ogata, Emiko, and Yamane, head out into Tokyo Bay, and they use a Geiger counter to figure out where exactly Godzilla is under the water. Originally, Ogata was going to go down to release the oxygen destroyer device, um, but Sarazawa says, no, I'm going down as well. And once they find Godzilla under the water, Sarazawa signals for them to both head back up, but Ogata is the only one who goes up. Sarazawa remains down, he releases the oxygen destroyer device and watches as Godzilla is engulfed with the bubbles and disintegrated. He radios back up saying that, um, I hope you two will be happy together and like I said, this is going to be the first and last time this is ever used and he cuts his air supply. They see that Godzilla has been killed, but it's kind of a solemn moment because of the sacrifice of Sarazawa. And the movie ends with Dr. Yamane saying that, you know, I... I can't believe that Godzilla was the last of his kind. And if we continue testing hydrogen bombs, another Godzilla may come again. And that's the movie. Yeah. So where do you want to start talking about this movie, Sarah? What do you want to talk about first? I think, I don't know. For me, the best place to start is um, where this movie always gets me. Okay. So, like, get it, watching it, enjoying it, whatever... And then it always just takes a dagger and stabs right into my heart when there's a moment um, Godzilla's raising uh, Tokyo and there's this woman with like three kids holding them close and she's like, we're going to be joining daddy soon. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. The standout sequence in the movie is the destruction of Tokyo. Godzilla attacks the city twice, but his first attack is sort of like a like a, a reconnaissance mission. Like he comes, <laughs> he comes in 
uh, his foot gets hit by a train, and he gets upset, and so he goes back into the water. Yeah, he, like, destroys the train, and then he kind of turns around, right? Um, the second attack, which starts with him getting through the electric fence with his atomic breath, um, that sequence, like, in a plot summary, you know, when you were saying the plot summary, it's just, like, Godzilla attacks Tokyo. But I'm pretty sure, like, that's, like, a 20-minute sequence in the movie. Like, it's, like the like, the big set piece of the movie. And it is like, apocalyptic. Yeah. Right? Godzilla is implacable. I mean, this is part of what has always appealed to me about Godzilla as, like, a monster, is, like, he is just going to destroy Tokyo. He comes ashore, and it's, like, whatever is in his way gets destroyed. Yeah. If it bothers him, like, the military shooting at him, it's going to get the atomic breath and lit on fire. I mean, the the electric fence gets, like, melted. You know, I, I described it in the making of stuff that it was, like, this spray nozzle. So at this point in the development of Godzilla, like, it's not... He doesn't breathe out, like, fire or, like, a laser beam or any kind of, like, energy thing. It's like a mist that comes out and then just, like, lights everything aflame. And, yeah, like you said, like, Tokyo's just this sea of flames by the end of this sequence. The cinematography of it is, like, really incredible. I mean, I think the whole movie has really good cinematography. This kind of very, like, noirish yeah, cinematography. A lot of contrast between whites and blacks. Yeah, there's very little, like, gray in the... Cinematography. Yes, it's it's very, like... Harsh blacks, harsh whites, high contrast. Like, the first scene after the boat gets destroyed at the start, where we meet Ogata, is, like, got the, like, Venetian blinds and everything. Yeah. But in this sequence with Godzilla, like, it's very dark. It's, like, blacks on blacks on blacks, right? Godzilla himself is mostly backlit or edgelit rather than being lit straight on. And part of that might be to, like, keep him kind of a dark, mysterious figure and to hide, like, what the suit really looks like and things like that. But it also just, like, really increases this impression of him as this, like, abyssal doom monster when he's just this black Mm -hmm. figure against a black sky, edge-lit by the flames around him. You know, despite being this implacable creature that you can't reason with and you can't shoot down you know like the jet planes don't do anything right he's not king kong you can't shoot him down he doesn't have like a motivation you can't bait him with a sexy babe no right it's also like he doesn't have any motivation for coming on to the land well yeah other than to just wreck shit right other than the fact that he's just pissed off And in pain and wanting, you know, to destroy things because he's pissed off and in pain. I mean, the really impressive thing about Godzilla is, despite the fact that the suit's not very, like, expressive, and he's very, like, lumbering and slow and deliberate, you still get a sense of personality from the monster. He's not mindless. His primary emotion that you get from Godzilla is anger, right? Is, like aggravation and annoyance at, like, what's going on around him and then lashing out at the things that have aggravated him. Yeah, but even as, like, the film is able to show his emotions, Mm. 
the impact is still on the human experience. Right, exactly. Like, when the train hits into Godzilla's foot, like, he he's pissed, he's, like, chewing on some of the boxcars, I guess. It's like a passenger train. But you see people, like, escaping from them and hiding, and they are crying. Like, a very realistic experience of, like, we were about to die. Right. Like, this is the big difference between this and, like, King Kong in New York, right? Like, King Kong has personality. Um, and his personality is very different from Godzilla's. And it's, it's more, like, curious. Yeah, it's very expressive. Um, he has a lot more emotional range than Godzilla. The thing about Godzilla, though, is... And this comes back to, you know, what you just said about the people in the train and the mother with her children... The thing that makes Godzilla different from any other American monster movie that I've ever seen, or even, like, American disaster movie, is that the focus is on the human cost of the destruction, right? We see people dying. We see people's horror. We see people's despair. Like, the mother who you're talking about isn't a character. No, she's just there. Yeah, she's just there for this one scene, and so it's like, they are making a point of showing you the human cost of what's happening rather than it being a cheap ploy for, like, pathos. You know, it's not the thing where, like, she's there and her kids are going to die and then, like, I don't know, Ogata comes out out of nowhere and helps her get out of there. Like, no one helps her. She's dead. The thing that is um, really remarkable about this movie is that, like, I don't recall an American film of this type that treats the destruction wrought on the city as real. Yeah. And, like, examines how horrific the days after would be. Like, the thing that's wild about the destruction of Tokyo compared to, like, what you'd expect in an American monster movie like this is it's not the climax of the movie. Yeah, it's, like, the inciting incident. <laughs> not quite. It's, it's like, <laughs> the midway point. It's, yeah. like, the end of Act 2, right? Yeah. And, like, the planes drive Godzilla off, but they don't defeat him. He just retreats. And then we see, like, the dead, the dying, the wreckage, the rubble, this horrible aftermath. The grieving in the morning. Right. Which is what pushes the three main characters to act, right? It pushes uh, Emiko to tell Ogata about the Oxygen Destroyer so that Ogata will make the plea to Serizawa to use it. And seeing the reports on TV is what you know, changes Serizawa's mind, that emphasizing the human cost and the horror, and you never see that in, like, an American movie. You see the destruction, but you don't see the aftermath of yeah. the destruction. And it in American movies, you know, it kind of makes the destruction feel less... It kind of makes the destruction feel less real. Yeah. Uh, it has less weight, because you just see the buildings get destroyed, but you don't have to, like, look at, like, the dead and the dying, Right. And I feel like the big difference, you know, we can talk about, well, the Japanese went through Hiroshima and the firebombing of Tokyo and all yeah. these things, right? Like, this movie draws on that imagery. I mean, if you were in Japan in 1954 watching this, it's less than 10 years since the war ended, right? So, like, you remember what the firebombing of Tokyo was like, right? Yeah. Like, these are very familiar images. And there are people in the movie, like, just like, you know, someone on the train saying, like, you know, I... I got out of Nagasaki before the bomb. Like, I was lucky, and now there's this? Yeah, people talk about the atomic tuna. People talk about going back into the bomb shelters. The war 
hangs heavy over a lot of characters in this movie. The mom talking to her kids, like, we're going to join your dad soon. Well, that's because dad died in the war. Yeah. Right? Or, like, Serizawa, who has an eye patch, because it makes him look cool. Which it does. Uh, but because he lost an eye in the war. Yeah. Right? And he's this broken character um, after the war. And, like, so the war hangs over everything. And I think it's it's not just about the fact that Japan went through these things. But it's the fact that, like, if you think of all these American movies where cities get destroyed, whether it's the American versions of Godzilla, uh, whether it's, like, big disaster movies like The Day After Tomorrow or, or whatever, Independence Day, America has never had its cities bombed. I, I feel like 9-11... That's not a, a bombing. Those two buildings were destroyed. I'm talking... That's a terrorist attack. That's a isolated incident. I'm talking about, like... America's never had their cities fucking shelled into wreckage on a grand, wide scale, right? Um, Of the kind that basically every city in Europe got in World War II. Sure. I mean, I think that there's still instances like like the Tulsa Race Riot in the States where, like, whole neighborhoods are destroyed. But I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm, I'm not... You know, talking about the kind of devastation caused by a riot. I'm talking about the entire downtown of your city being rubble. Just to clarify, like, are you talking about, like, man-made things? Because I'm also thinking, like, Hurricane Katrina or other natural disasters. What I'm talking about is that American movies don't ever seem to focus on the, like, actual psychological impact of these in their big disaster movies. I'm saying that, like, when you watch movies where a big monster destroys a city or the aliens blow up every landmark in every city in America and you see L.A. on fire and New York on fire, the way that those American movies go is then, like, the well, hero... we back from it and we're triumphant. Yeah, the hero shoots the lead alien in the face and says, Welcome to Earth. And then the music swells and everybody's happy and then the movie ends. And we don't see any kind of aftermath of any of this stuff. I've never seen an American movie that does what Godzilla does. And I think a big part of it is because, especially in the 1950s when Godzilla was made, but even today, I don't think Americans have like a good psychological grasp on what that would be like. It's very hard as like a director or a writer. You know, even in 2014, when they remade Godzilla in the US and they wanted it to be a serious gritty movie like this movie and it was post 9/11 but like that movie still ends with like Godzilla trashes the city while he's fighting these other monsters and then he goes off into the ocean and then the movie just ends that's the end there's no aftermath the avengers were like the big aliens come and like trash most of new york and then they die and it's like hooray and we never focus on the aftermath of those things. And I think it's because Americans don't know how to do that. Like when I say Americans, I mean like American filmmakers, Yeah. right? They don't have the psychological grounding in what that really feels like to have destruction on that scale. Yeah. I think the closest that you get is like to use Avengers as the example, like you see people coming together and like, you know, resilience and like uplifting each other. Yeah. It's not the same kind of like despair that I think is maybe a bit more realistic and definitely is the case in 
what we see in Godzilla. Yeah, and even when the characters in Godzilla use their tragedy to be like, okay, we have to do something about this, there's still corpses around them in huge numbers. There's still hospitals full of dying people. There's a shot in this movie of a little girl watching her mother die of radiation sickness and then, like, some people taking her mother's dead body away on a stretcher as she starts crying. And this is in, you know, the blockbuster monster movie about the big dinosaur that shoots fire out of his mouth, right? Yeah. And, like, you just would never see this in in an American movie, especially not of this time in the 1950s. And I think a big part of it is that Japan got bombed, you know... Other cities, Europe got bombed. America's never been bombed in a war. What I think I really like about this movie is that it has that overwhelming sense of powerlessness in the face of a thing like Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Um, The horror of the whole thing. It gives that fear and horror to the oxygen destroyer as well. But even in all of that, it still isn't, like, nihilistic or anything like that because, like, even as we may be, like, powerless in the face of, like, Godzilla's rampaging the city right now, I feel like it gives a lot of, like, weight to the value and agency we have to, like, stop this in the future. I think that one of the things that really shows the difference in like attitude of this movie versus what you would get from an American movie like this can be seen in the difference in tone in the ending between the American and Japanese versions of this movie. Because it's the same ending, like Sarazawa kills himself and Godzilla's destroyed and everyone's sad about Sarazawa dying, but he made this great sacrifice, right? But in the American version, Raymond Burr's narration says something along the lines of, like, a great man was gone, but the whole world could wake up and live again. And it's that very, you know, what you were just talking about in these American movies of people, like, coming together and overcoming the tragedy and finding hope, right? In the Japanese version, Serizawa's dead, and the movie ends with Yamane saying, I can't believe that Godzilla was the last of its kind. And if we continue testing nuclear weapons another Godzilla will rise again. And the difference there is, like, instead of this sense of, like, we can overcome, right? This very American sense that you get of, like, this horrible disaster has happened, but if we band together, we can overcome it and we'll become better than it. Like, fuck yeah! We can defeat anything. The thing here is, like, we defeated Godzilla, but it was hard. And it required very difficult choices. And it required sacrifice. And it doesn't mean we're off the hook. You know, this could happen again. And the only way it doesn't happen again is if we're vigilant. And if we are putting the effort in to do better as people. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, like, empathy for the effect our decisions have on other people Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Even to the point of Sarazawa willing to not risk a decision on his own part for fear that it would affect, that it would destroy millions. It's just a different tone. It's the same idea of like, okay, we can defeat these tragedies and we can get past them and we can, you know, survive. But it's not this feeling of like, we overcome them because ultimately like we're better than this or whatever. 
the people in Godzilla are still humbled yeah. by their experience with Godzilla. And I feel like that's a very Japanese attitude, a very non-American attitude of like, yes, we can face these problems and we can overcome these problems and we can defeat them, but like we still need to remain humble in the face of them. We're not invincible. And just because we beat this thing doesn't mean we're, you know, safe forever. Yeah. There's a lot of people who didn't survive this thing. And, like, you know, it can come again. Yeah. Like, you talk about the hurricanes with the United States, and I think that's a very good, apt thing to bring up. And who knows how, like, the psyche of, you know, what I'm talking about, the American disaster movie, will change as we've had more and greater and more frequent and more devastating natural disasters because of climate change, right? Later movies in the series often like to compare Godzilla to a natural disaster, something that just happens, and you are in the path of it, and there's just fucking nothing you can do, buddy. Yeah, and then, like, Guillermo del Toro said that that was part of the inspiration for Pacific Rim's monsters. Right. And I think that if you go back to the 50s and you look at Japanese attitudes versus American attitudes, you know, pre- the kind of monster hurricane seasons we now have. The other thing about Japan is, like, not only did it get firebombed, not only did it get nuked, not only did it suffer all this stuff, but, like, Japan gets rocked by tsunamis, like, on the reg. Yeah. It gets rocked by hurricanes on the reg, right? Earthquakes, whatever. Like, they are a culture for whom it's like, oh, yeah, tsunami. Yeah, I guess it's Tuesday, right? (laughs) And so, like, there's a sense of... Yes, these are horrible disasters, but, like, we have to keep going. And we keep going with the knowledge that it's definitely going to happen again. Like, yeah. not the knowledge of, like, well, we defeated this tsunami, so now we're safe from tsunamis forever. You know, talking about the idea of Godzilla as, like, a force of nature. And the idea that, like, we have the power to stop this right now with stopping nuke testing, with mm-hmm. doing... Step against climate change. Like, right. these are the things that feel that 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 I feel with this movie. Yeah, I think this movie still has relevance, even if the nuclear testing thing doesn't feel as relevant to us in the moment. Because the idea behind this movie is like the change that needs to be made to de- prevent widespread devastation. Like, yes, we defeated Godzilla. But we need to have this larger social change of stopping nuclear testing, which is going to be a much more difficult, big, widespread, government-level thing that needs to happen. And it's the same thing with, like, you know, today with climate change. It's like, yes, you can recycle, and yes, you can buy fluorescent lights and drive a smart car and shit, but to actually save the planet, we need, like, large government-scale decisions to fundamentally change how things are done, right? There's a line in the American version of the original when Ogata's trying to convince Serizawa to use the oxygen destroyer. And the line in the American version is Ogata tells Serizawa, you have your fear, which might become reality. And then you have Godzilla, which is reality. Mm -hmm. It's a very good line. Yeah. For me, you talk about the scene with the the mom and her kids, and that's such a powerful moment. Um, The other scene that definitely gets me is the prayer for peace 
oh yeah scene which again like coming back to the idea of how unique this movie is as a monster disaster movie like the fact that the movie just stops for like five minutes for like a song that's like this dirge this um elegy for the dead it's really incredible and you know ultimately it's really important because it's the like emotional fulcrum where the true theme of the movie emerges because we suddenly now realize what the movie's about is like this thing about Serizawa like desperately not wanting to become Oppenheimer right like Godzilla as a metaphor for the bomb I think is something people talk about a lot but like the oxygen destroyer is a metaphor for the bomb Right? Yeah. And what I really like about this movie as well is that it gives room for many different perspectives Mm. to exist simultaneously, even as they are rubbing up against each other. Right. So, like, Yamane wants to study Godzilla, doesn't want him destroyed, and it would be for the betterment of mankind. But... If Godzilla lives, he's going to destroy everything. There might mm-hmm. be some positives that come out of studying him, but the power within him is too risky. Mm-hmm. The oxygen destroyer is a very like risky weapon of mass destruction, could easily fall into the hands of someone who would want to use it. Mm-hmm. I'll put it that way. I don't, I don't think there's a right, re- there's the right hands for it to fall in. Sure. Um, and I think, like, it is completely understandable for Sarazawa to be like, fuck, what have I just discovered? Mm-hmm. But it's also the only thing that's going to destroy Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And the movie makes the space for these people to have these conversations, even after the fist fight between Ogata and Serizawa. Like, they're sitting, and that's when they, like, Serizawa's like, yeah, but it could be used to completely destroy everything in Tokyo Bay. Yeah. The movie, yeah, gives time for the arguments to be said, right? And I think also manages to give its characters, like, very believable psychology. Yeah. Like, all of these characters are still kind of archetypes, right? Like, the kindly old professor, the mad scientist, the young hero, the, the girlfriend. The couple. Yeah. yeah. But, like, they all feel a lot more real. The character work being done by Honda with the script and the actors with their characters uh, is really impressive. Because, like, for one thing, uh, Serizawa, our mad scientist, is the hero of the movie. Yeah. Right? That's like a big shift from what he would be like in an American film. Yeah, I feel like in an American film, Godzilla is his creation. Right, exactly. And like, neither he nor Ogata is wrong. And I think, you know, it's interesting the way that their philosophical debate about the Oxygen Destroyer and Godzilla is mirrored in the love triangle that exists between the characters. Because the love triangle is, like, really subdued, actually. Yeah. Um, Emiko, you know, is betrothed to Serizawa. And, like, they've been betrothed since they were kids. But, like, there was some scenes that were shot for this movie that were deleted of, um, like, flashbacks to Emiko and Serizawa before the war when they, were like, were happy. And you can really see that, like, Serizawa 
was very broken by the war because uh, he's a very different person in those flashbacks. But, like, as they're betrothed, like, she's dating Ogata, and they're in love, and no one's really in the wrong here. Like, you know, she needs to break it off with him, but she, like, can't because, like, she respects him too much, or, like, she feels pity for him, you know, and so it's just this, like, difficult thing, and, like, clearly, like, her father approves of her getting married to Serizawa, but, like, he yeah, also... her father and Ogata don't really see eye to eye. Right, but Ogata's also there, like, at their home having family dinner with them on the reg. So, like, he knows that she's dating Ogata, right? So, you know, and Ogata's not really in the wrong. He didn't steal Emiko away, or they're not doing anything secretly or on the sly. Like, Ogata says that we have nothing to be ashamed about. So, like, nobody's really in the wrong, but a decision needs to be made. Yeah. That being said, the love triangle does provide these, like, subtle tensions in the scenes. Like, you know, when it's like, okay, let's go talk to Serizawa about the oxygen destroyer. And they show up, and Serizawa's, like, convinced that pretty much that they're there to talk to him about, like, hey, we're, we're getting married and she's breaking up with you. Like, everybody knows that conversation has to happen, but nobody's having that conversation. Yeah. But really, the love triangle's here, I think, mostly just to explain how all these characters know each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the, the easiest way. In future Godzilla movies, it's, like, the scientist and the reporter. Yeah. And, like, the, and one of their assistants right. is the girl. Yeah. Um, and that's the makeup of the cast. But, yeah, I think you're on the money there. I think um, no one here is a David Manners. Right. Um, I feel like everyone's doing pretty good. I think, if anything, the weakest is maybe the person playing Emiko. But part of that is, like, her character has more to do than what, like, a female character in, the, in a U.S. horror movie has to do. But she still doesn't have a lot to do. I mean, what's interesting about Emiko is that she's very much like an emotional fulcrum for the movie. Yes. Um, and I think that she is given a lot of importance in the plot within expected traditional feminine role that she has to have. Yeah. Uh, again, like you said, much more to the degree of an American heroine. Um, what's interesting about her is like she's not here to be sexy, right? She's not here to be, like, a damsel in distress. Yeah, she's not sing like she, singled out as being put into danger. In right. fact, she probably is in less danger than even the guys. Yeah, she she does have, like, a moment on Odo Island when Godzilla first appears where, like, she, she trips and falls and, like, Ogata goes to her and she looks up and sees Godzilla and screams. But, like, she's not in any, yeah, more danger than anyone else, you know, around her. Um, and then, you know, it's the fact that it's her compassion for the people around her that leads her to break her promise, which then leads to everything else. Right. Yeah. So she's very important in that way. And she's what's tying all the male characters together as well. I think Momoko Kochi gives a good performance. I think that, uh, Akira Takarada is also very good as Ogata. I think what's most successful about them isn't necessarily that they're giving like, Oscar-worthy, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis performances, <laughs> but just that they are, like, giving genuine performances, that they're treating their characters as if they were, like, real people who this stuff was really happening to. Yeah, it, it kind of grounds the movie. Very much so. Speaking of grounding the movie, I think that Professor Yamane is not 
Takeshi Shimura's best role. I don't think this is his best performance, <laughs> you know, but his gravitas is still, like, anchoring the film, giving the film this, like, point that it can rotate around of, like, a respected actor, you know, who who knows what he's doing. Mentoring the new actors, the new faces. Yes, and, like, performing his role as seriously as possible, you know. You know, he's not giving the performance he would give for Kurosawa, but, like, he's not here to just pick up a paycheck. He's he's not not phoning phoning it in. in. (laughs) And he's not, like, camping it up either. Yeah. Right? Like, everyone's acting as if this is real. Um, I feel like he's doing a Boris Karloff here. A little bit. The way that Boris Karloff would approach these roles. I think, though, if you want to talk about the standout in the cast, it's, for my money, it's Akihiko Hirata as Serizawa. Uh, For the human characters, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, that's what <laughs> I'm talking about. Because I think about. the dude in the suit, I forget his <laughs> name, but he, he does a very good job of being able to convey what we talked about, about, like, Godzilla's, like, emotions and feelings I, in a very limited way. Like, he does a very good job. But yes, for the human characters, Serizawa, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking about the human characters in the movie, one of the weird things about this movie that you kind of pick up on more and more the more times you watch it are there a few like background characters who are in like tons and tons of scenes but like who aren't anyone yeah like the reporter right um the kid from odo island yes brother comes back his parents get smushed and he is like with the yamane family and they're like talking about getting him into school and stuff like they've kind of adopted him yes so like there's hagiwara the reporter and Shinkichi, who is the kid. And they're very interesting characters, mostly, yeah, because you watch the movie and you think they should be more important than they are, and it's because a ton of their scenes were cut. Mm. Like, just to, like, focus the movie down and streamline it. Because, like, Hagiwara is supposed to kind of be how we get from place to place, right? It's like, he's the reporter, so we use him to get from character to character and explore these things. But once we're introduced to all the characters and places, we don't need him anymore. And so he just kind of vanishes. Yeah, I feel like that's the case with Shinkichi as well. Yeah. Because he's who we see on Odo Island. Yes, and so his brother, Masaji, is a fisherman on Odo Island whose fishing boat finds survivors from the salvage ship and then it itself is destroyed, and Masaji is actually the only survivor then of that. Yeah. And Shinkichi is his brother. And then, yeah, like you said, Masaji and Shinkichi's family are all killed in Godzilla's attack on Odo Island, which is a really cool sequence in and of itself, because the film's really gradual about revealing Godzilla, right? So we don't see him until when Yamane's team is on Odo Island, and we just see yeah. his head poke up over a hill. If you watch carefully during the attack on Odo Island at night, you can see some of Godzilla's like feet poking in here and there. Yeah, we can kind of see his legs moving behind houses as the houses are destroyed, but it's really using that like black on black on black and the fact that it's raining and windy to make it very like subtle. Yeah. But anyways, his family's all killed. And like you said, he's then with the Yamanes after that. And yeah, his storyline's supposed to be that Professor Yamane adopts him as a son 
uh, because his family's all been killed. And so then he moves with them back to Tokyo, and they have to get him into school, and they have to do all these things. And, like, Ogata's kind of mentoring him and all this stuff. But, like, most of his scenes are cut, right? One of the coolest things, and I don't think it was, like, particularly, like, intentional, is that because Godzilla's roar, but more specifically his footsteps, come from this symphony... It always makes it feel like, is that Godzilla or is that just the music? Is that just right. the soundtrack? And it also, because like they make a point of like, do you hear those footsteps? Like, blurring that line of diegetic and non-diegetic worlds when it comes to Godzilla really makes him feel even more like... Larger than life. Exactly. Larger than the film itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ikira Fukube's score is also a big part of what gives this movie its, like, dead serious, like, somber feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, he writes these beautiful, like, funeral dirges, basically, for Tokyo and for Godzilla. Um, and the march he has for when we're fighting against Godzilla. Yeah. Is, it's always so, like, a little... It's always a little odd to me because it's very like, yeah, we're going to fight Godzilla, we're going to push him off. But then in terms of the narrative, that's definitely not what happens. So it always feels a little like ironic. See, I always feel like that march has this feeling of like, yes, we're marching off to fight Godzilla, but we're also definitely going to die. Like, it has this feeling of grim determination. It has the feeling of suicide bombers, of, like, kamikaze pilots. Like, it has this feeling of, like, yes, we're going to go out there and fight, but we're not necessarily going to win. Like, the point... We're going to hold the line. Yeah. Like, the point isn't winning. The point is going out there and doing it. Right? But, yeah, he, he writes just... His music is so genuine. Mm-hmm. And it's it's about genuinely conveying the emotion of the scenes of like the power of Godzilla and the dedication of the army and the tragedy of the destruction and these things. And what it doesn't have is a feeling of like music that's trying to rouse or excite the audience and say like, ooh, look how weird and cool this is, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't really write, you know, there's nothing here with like a theremin. You know? Can you imagine? Yeah. It really makes a big difference in the movie. Like, there's a reason why Ikira Fukube's themes from this movie and from the sequels would be used over and over and over again, even in movies where, like, he didn't do the score for them, right? There's a reason why, like, this is the Godzilla theme. Yeah. Right? It, it really helps sell the movie. Like, the prayer for peace scene, for sure, is, like, carried by that music, obviously. The death of Godzilla and Serizawa is, like, another very powerfully subdued sequence. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the ending, which is much more, like, reservedly cautious rather than, like, hopeful or triumphant. Yeah. And all of that's being brought together by the music. Yeah, it's not a score that has to carry 
movie. No. The movie, like a Star Wars situation, right. you know? It, But it, it's right up there, neck and neck with them. It's telling you what kind of movie it is. Absolutely. It's letting you know this is the mood of this movie, which is what music is for in yeah. movies. Yeah, One thing about Godzilla, if you've never seen it, I think that tone can be really surprising. Mm-hmm. But that's a big part of, like, you know, the question of why are we considering this horror and not, like, King Kong? Yeah. And I think a large part of it is that tone. King Kong is sensationalist. It's like, well, look what we can do with stop motion. And it's also, like, you know, a very focused kind of story of, like, this big ape and this human woman. And, you know, it, it's tragic but it's not horror well whereas like godzilla is solemn and it's more like not so much like look what we can do but look what we've brought on ourselves Mm -hmm. godzilla has something to say yeah right that that's also and i mean king kong the other thing is like yes fey ray screams a lot and is put in peril but like our heroes are like let's get them with those gas bombs (laughs) and the movie's out to, like, excite you, right? Not really to scare you or to make you feel horror in any way. And even when he's destroying New York, like, there's the bit where he finds the woman who isn't Fay Ray, and so he just tosses her aside and, like, drops her onto the street below. Yeah. And, like, that's kind of horrific, but the movie doesn't, like, dwell on it at all. It's no. just like, okay, cool, that like, person's dead. Like, there's a moment in Godzilla where... He is going towards this TV tower where these reporters are. Right. And he's drawn there because of their flashing lights, uh, with, like, taking photos, whatever. And this reporter is, like, he, he's coming right at us. I think this is the end. Like, fuck me. Signing off, ladies and gentlemen. Like, he's just continuing to do his broadcast as Godzilla approaches and kills him. And, like, knocks off the tower. And you, like, there's a shot, a first-person camera shot going down towards the ground Mm -hmm. and that's supposed to be like their point of view or like the radio tower's point of view but it's like like that the weight and tone of that compared to the woman being dropped because she's not Fay Ray. yeah and i mean like the destruction is very much in king kong like just part of the spectacle right and here we like live in the destruction we grieve and mourn with them right and it might be a little hard for you know an audience of Americans in the 50s to register that as horror again because they haven't been through that situation. I think that modern Americans, you know, because of the incidences that you've, like, brought up and stuff, 9-11, Katrina, 2020, (laughs) um, might, you know, be able to empathize with that level of desperation more. It's not like big spooky house. There's no, like... Vampire. Vampire. Like, it's not what they see as fitting into that very specific horror, universal horror box. Well, yeah, but, like, there's a horror to Godzilla as this, like, thing that you can't do anything about, right? That's gonna come and destroy your whole life. 
but then there's also just like you know the horror of the oxygen destroyer as like a concept and can we use it like the a lot horror of the... of like what mankind has created yeah there's a lot of like existential horror here right yeah and just like the weight of the world and i think that really grounds this movie as a horror movie because it's really a horror movie it's not like a lot of horror movies we use the word horror to describe a genre but a lot of horror movies are like terror movies really sure where you like round a corner and like the spooky nun goes blah <laughs> um this isn't really a terror movie this is a horror movie where yeah. we're sitting in the horrific nature of what's happening it's akin to phantom carriage yeah but you know like i said in our context setting it gives birth to this genre that is not horror that's this mutant offspring that is its own thing and that can have a lot of different genre elements in it. This is horror, but it gives birth to movies that aren't. And so moving forward in time, like we're not going to be looking at like other Japanese monster movies or even other, um, there were a lot of movies from other countries that tried to like cash in on what Godzilla was. And we're not going to really be looking at those because they're giant monster movies and they're a different category. And we can have a whole different, podcast about that basically so let's move on to ranking well uh i love everything about this movie <laughs> to the point where i get really angry when people put it down like i get I upset i think it's very powerful i think it's a major achievement i have a spot picked out i don't have a range i just have a spot okay well tell me your spot three number three okay okay i i thought we were going to uh i thought you, you were going to say number one Okay, no. I mean, I really love Godzilla, but this is still a list of the best horror movies ever made. And, you know, we, we've justified why we think Gojira is a horror movie, but I still think, like, it's a lot of other things, too. Yeah. And I think that if we're talking about horror as a genre, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Cat People are still better horror movies than this, but I do think this is a better movie than Spiral Staircase. So I just slotted right in at number three uh what what about you where were you looking sarah my range was six and above okay six is where shark harlan uh phantom carriage is and as i kind of alluded to earlier to me these are very similar in tone yes of like that existential horror that funeral dirge tone yeah you know i feel like Godzilla could go above Phantom Carriage easy. Mm -hmm. Because while, if you want me to explain it, Phantom Carriage is just like, David Holm, you are a jerk and you need to get your shit in order. Whereas Godzilla's like, humanity, get your shit together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, Phantom Carriage is about the horror of like alcoholism and tuberculosis, and Godzilla's about the horror of like the fact that humanity has reached a point in its development where it can do things that it cannot predict the consequences of and then... And destroy itself. Right. In many different ways. Right. And that the only way around it is by hoping that, like, large-scale action, that, like, governments and peoples will develop, like, responsibility and consciences. So what's what's between three and six? What's in there? Um, so Spiral Staircase at number three, Old Dark House at number four, and I Walked With a Zombie at number five. Okay. Um, I was feeling like, you know, this could be, Godzilla could be comparable to Old Dark House in the sense of, like, starting off a genre and, like, a whole new set of tropes, 
both are also still like a little like uh, I don't want to say nihilistic, but like a little bit more dread horror rather than anything else. Old but... Dark House has more comic relief. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So like, I'm cool with Godzilla going above Old Dark House. I think in tone, it's very similar to I Walked with a Zombie in the sense of like having this very like definitive tone. Yeah. But yeah, I the reason I thought it was better than Spiral Staircase was because, like, Spiral Staircase is really good as, like, a scary movie and, like, putting its lead character in just, like, the worst position she could possibly be in, right? But, like, it's still a movie where, like, at the end of the day, like... A gun solves the problem. Ethel Barrymore comes to the rescue out of nowhere (laughs) because she could walk and had a gun this whole time uh, and saves you. Yeah, I, I... Spiral Staircase is a lot of fun. But I don't... It doesn't make me cry. <laughs> Spiral Staircase is really good, though, Ben. It I, is. I'm really torn. It is really good. Spiral Staircase is a really fun ride, but it's not really about anything. Like, it has this thing of, like, the misogynist killer. And, like, it has this thing of, like, you know, the girl who no one will listen to or believe. But, like, a lot of that's just because, like, she's mute and he's rich and like like there's nothing it's good and you can pull themes out of it but it's not making a statement it's here to entertain us and it's doing it in a really good way i feel like though with that kind of explanation why below cat people cuz cat people is about something cat people's about like mental illness and uh, people's problems with their own sexuality and like people's deep-seated like phobias and fears like Cat People goes into human psychology much more than Godzilla does and does a much better job of being a horror movie, I think. Um, I think Spiral Staircase is also a very good horror movie, but it doesn't have that depth that Cat People does. Sure. that I guess that makes sense. Part of what's throwing me off is um, the scale of... <laughs> sure, it's hard <laughs> to compare it. Well, like, a man with a gun and Godzilla. No. I'm talking about the scale of um, the horror yes. of like an entire city just being destroyed by this unforgiving, unstoppable creature versus the like more um, individual level horror. Exactly. Yeah. I think my my thoughts on that are like Godzilla. You know, yeah, has the scale. And I think that's one of the things that puts it above Spiral Staircase to me. You know, how do you beat scale, right? If you're going to have a smaller degree horror movie, you know, because otherwise this is just going to turn into an arms race of like, well, my horror movie killed everyone on the planet. The way that you beat scale is with depth. Yeah. Right? So the deeper you go into the characters' psychologies and the characters' horrors and fears and phobias, and I think Cat People does that, and I think definitely Jekyll and Hyde does that. Right? I feel like Old Dark House really does that, but mm-hmm. then, again, the uh, comic relief is still, like, there. And yeah. it's also just, like, these really fucked up people in a house and these poor people who have, like, crashed on the side of the road yeah, there. Yeah, because it's 1930s Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I, I, I can get behind this. So, number three. Wow. Okay. I I wasn't sure how much fighting I would have to do for that, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. 
Entering the list at the new number three, below Cat People and above the Spiral Staircase, is Gojira from 1954, directed by Ishiro Honda. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, or contest an omitted film that should be on the list, uh, you can reach out to our appeals box on Tumblr. You can reach us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are available by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice, or by sharing the show on social media, uh, letting people know about it. If you've got friends who you think might be into our little show, let them know all about it. Uh, word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. If you have the financial means, head over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a financial supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 and $10 levels, you get access to special bonus material. Uh, we've got bonus audio cut from past episodes going up every week, and we've got some exciting stuff coming up for October, as always, for our patrons. Um... One idea that I've been kicking around is the idea of doing a special on HUAC. Uh, it's something we've talked about here at Castle Scream Scene from time to time about doing. Yeah. We've gotten some requests from listeners for it now. Oh, neat. So I think doing that as like a special uh, bonus episode might be a fun thing to do. Yeah, cool. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, it's kind of funny, Sarah. When... Professor Yamane is giving his speech about his theory about Godzilla's origin, and he's trying to, like, support it. One of the things he uses as evidence to support it is the idea that, like, footprints in the Himalayas that are said to belong to, like, snowmen or yetis have been found, and that mystery has yet to be solved. So, like, if there could be yetis, then why couldn't there be a Godzilla? And, you know, he brings this up because, like, these footprints were in the news in the mid-50s and were kind of a big mystery stir and uh, that led to a whole bunch of Yeti movies including next week's movie the first of these The Snow Creature from Britain Cool. Um, I think the plural is just Yeti like moose Okay. I think We'll do some research and find out. Yeah, next week on Scream See. See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.